The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Yo, 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 what up? This is Rocky Asuka Romero of Chaos, and you are listening to Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frogs. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get go Boy Yeah from Tampa Bay To the Tokyo Dome This is keeping it strong style With your host Jeremy Donovan And the young boy Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style The ace of podcasts On the Social Suplex Podcast Network Jeremy Donovan here With the young boy Josh Smith on today's show, we will review Wrestle Kingdom 18 and New Year's Dash and cover all this news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Please support our show by subscribing and following the Social Suplex Podcast Network or keeping a strong style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating interview. You can also get all the network's podcasts over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro Wrestling Tea store, prowrestlingtees.com. Slash social suplex. That's where you can get your official keeping it strong style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and clicking on the donate button under the keeping it strong style logo. Young boy, how you doing, man? You know, um, after seven years of doing this show together, I think I was entitled to one major snafu that delayed us by hours. And that's exactly what happened here. So um, even though I'm glad to be doing this show because it is Wrestle Kingdom after all, I'm a little bit perturbed that it took us about two hours to get into (laughs) being able to record this audio. Well, hey, you know, sometimes it's a labor of love, but yes, it's uh, the new year. It's the first keeping a strong style of 2024, and we got Wrestle Kingdom 18 to talk about, New Year Dash, so many news angles in and out of the world, New Japan Pro Wrestling to talk about here. Uh, so yeah, I'm glad that we're here and glad we can get this uh, episode out to the people. I don't like that the name of the show is New Year Dash. It's New Year's Dash in my mind, and I will always say New Year's Dash, and I don't care if that makes me sound ignorant. I just like the way it sounds. It feels better. It's got a better mouth feel. So it does. Yeah, I struggle, and the same thing with like the whole Rambo Rambo thing. Oh, it'll always be Rambo to me because it's <laughs> you know insensitive. So I say it that way. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, thank you guys for tuning in, and um, I, this is always an episode where we have a lot of first-time listeners, you know, uh, listening in to get our hot takes. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna shoot them off, pew pew, and um, you know, get right into it. Yeah. So before we jump into the Wrestle Kingdom 18 review, two things we gotta take care of here at the top. First, since this is the first episode of january that means we have to name our december wrestler of the month and a match of the month 
So, Josh, tell the people what we picked for the December match of the month. You know, it, it was it was basically a two horse race down the stretch, and it was a very very close call. But ultimately, we decided to go with the um, never open weight six man tag team title defense from um, Road to Tokyo Dome just last month, where uh, the Dream Team, the Super Team, Team Hall of Fame, whatever you want to call them, um, Okada, Tanahashi, and Ishii, they successfully defended their never titles against the team of Great Okan, Hanari, and Jeff Cobb, the trio from United Empire. And this was a blowaway match. Uh, be sure to check out um, a couple weeks ago our review of that event and all of our thoughts. But uh, yeah, if you haven't seen that match, you owe it to yourself to go back into the archives on New Japan World and give that match a watch. And it, it, it was phenomenal, especially like the last seven minutes with Ishii and Hanare, just blow away stuff. Honorable mention and close second to the World Tag League finals between G.O.D. and Bishamon. Um, it was a really close call and either match could have been match of the month, but uh, we decided to go with the Never Man, Never Six Mans. Yeah, that was an awesome matchup. Definitely worthy of match of the month. And then for our December Wrestler of the Month, we're going to go with the Stone Pitbull Tomohiro Ishii. And Ishii just had kind of a, a sneaky great December. You know, you would think it would probably be one of the teams from the World Tag League, maybe Bishamon, maybe ELP and Hikaleo, War Dogs. But no, it, it, it's Big Tom-ish. He had a great World Tag League. And like you mentioned, he was in this great never six-man defense. And he had that match with Callum Newman on the road to Tokyo Dome as well, which was another awesome matchup. So Ishii between their six-man defense, Callum Newman match, and the World Tag League, where, you know, even though he was teaming with Yano, they still had great matches. And uh, he carried a load throughout that tour. So uh, big time-ish December wrestler of the month. Yeah, and, and some of the best matches that that team had were in the month of December. So they kind of came on strong down the tail stretch. Plus, he had the rematch with Luke Jacobs in RevPro uh, last month as well, which kind of adds a little cherry on top. So congratulations, Tomohiro Ishii. I know you're listening, and uh, <laughs> you know, we're proud. Uh, then uh, one other thing here before we jump into the Wrestle Kingdom review, just a, a little network announcement here. So you probably saw... The posts on social media, but we got some new shows that are joining the Social Suplex Podcast Network, the Trish and Sarah Wrestling Podcast, and the Tunnel Talk Podcast have officially joined the Social Suplex Podcast Network. I believe their shows will be starting uh, this coming up weekend. They'll be showing up on the network feed, so make sure you subscribe to the network. That's where you can get all the great shows, including us, One Nation Radio, All Things Elite Wrestling Art with Chris Things and Imp's WWE Adventure. We have uh, slowly but surely rebuilt the network to a stacked lineup. So make sure you subscribe to the network feed and get all the great shows on one feed. Yeah, it's it's great to have a variety of different shows covering a lot of different topics within the realm and world of wrestling um, and doing it internationally once again, you know, on several continents. So uh, very proud of that. And I, you know, be honest with you, I haven't listened too much to Trish and Sarah, uh, nor Tunnel Talk. So I look forward to kind of uh, becoming fans of their shows as they join the lineup here in Social Suplex. And I think it's a really great thing. Yeah. 
All right, let's jump into the Wrestle Kingdom 18 review from the Tokyo Dome. Of course, this was January 4th. We had an attendance of 27,422, so it's up from last year, which was 26,085. I guess before we jump into the matches, Josh, what are your thoughts about the attendance number? I've seen a lot of hot takes, people saying it's good, saying it's bad. What do you think about this attendance number? You know, I, I I don't know that it's necessarily a bad number, but I don't think it's a number that you can uh, really point to and, you know, kind of say like New Japan is back sort of thing. And there were a lot of, um, you know, kind of apologists that were pointing to the success of the numbers, the early numbers of Wrestle Kingdom when it came to uh, the top billing of Naito and Sonata as you know, the, the main driving force behind that. They were kind of taking early victory laps, um, sort of assuming that there would be a huge walk-up number. Now, I don't know what the differential was between what the pre-sale buys were and then what they got the day of, but 27, that's not a bad number. I mean, there have been years in New Japan, even during the quote-unquote glory era, where they didn't do these kinds of numbers. It took a while for New Japan to build up to the point where they were doing, you know, the over 35 and 40s and, you know, I'm not, and then they they were still kind of shy of like what they were doing in the 90s, which was like in the 50s and allegedly all the way up to the 60s. I don't think the the billing holds those numbers, but, um, you know, 27 is not bad, but at the same time, if, if anyone's trying to point and say like, oh, look at the increase, it's like a thousand, a thousand souls over last year. That's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially considering last year there were still chairing restrictions. They were right. still limited capacity. So, yeah, I would expect this number to be a little bit higher. And I think there were a lot of people who were kind of overestimating, I guess, the ticket sales news. Cause I was seeing people that were like, Oh yeah, it's for sure going to hit 30, 35,000 and I'm like, oh, right. okay, I guess it's selling in Japan. We don't have WrestleTix, you know, to keep track on what's going on. Uh but yeah, then you get the follow, a final number here. It's 27422 and I'm like, okay, well, that's a okay number, but it's not this whole big Naito and Sonata are drawing this huge 30,000 plus house and uh so, yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's kind of a little disappointing compared to last year, considering there were still limited capacity and sharing restrictions. And you know, I, I think ideally they would have wanted to surpass the Muto number from his retirement show this year. Right. And I don't remember what that uh, number was. I'm pretty sure we shared a tweet earlier today. I mean, we, it's been so busy on the timeline lately, but uh, yeah, th- there was something that was sent out. Yeah, I've got it right here. So um, basically, they they fell short, uh, you know, kind of just roughly estimating by like probably around like three or four thousand from the Muto number. Gotcha. So, yeah, so they definitely could have done more. And as we talked about last week in the news, you know, Tanahashi wants to sell a dome out next year and it is going to be on a Saturday. So we, we do know that the weekend attendances does help the Wrestle Kingdom number. So. Yeah, it's definitely going to be up to whatever they book for that main event next year to kind of help get over uh, this a higher number for next year. But, I mean, overall, fine number, but uh, could have done better. But I think there is hope for next year's number to hit that 30,000 range. 
Yeah, it looks like uh, the Tokyo Dome number was reportedly 30,096, so roughly like, you know, 3,000 less, which again, isn't bad. That's not an unhealthy number. It's just not the roaring success that a lot of folks were making it out to be, you know? Right. Um, but, but I still think that in this uh, particular period of New Japan's business, with business being down, I'm sure they're probably very happy to some extent with that number because, you know, business hasn't been great this year. And this is a, a big house, big payday, and hopefully things improve from here. And maybe it will, maybe it won't. We're going to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, let's talk about the show. Uh, so opened up, we had the pre-show NJPW KOPW 2024 Right to Challenge Rambo match. So the final four ended up being the great Okan, Taiji Ishimori, Toriano, and Yo, and they outlasted Alex Coughlin, Chase Owens, Doki, Fujita Hayato, Gabe Kidd, Hanare, Jeff Cobb, Master Wato, Mikey Nichols, Shane Hayes, Sho, Taichi, Iska, Tomohiro Ishii, Yoshinobu Kanemaru, and Yujiro Takahashi. And before we jump into that match, one thing I just want to, a quick disclaimer for all the first-time listeners, because I'm sure there's going to be quite a few. Um, this podcast, we do not hold ourselves out to be uh, journalists. We don't hold our, even though we try to speak with as much um, responsibility and, and knowledge as we possibly can, this is a fan podcast. So we kind of tell you what our own personal opinions and takes and and ratings are, and we we try to do the best we can, but, uh, you know, if you're looking for a show where it's just going to be a hundred percent positive, no matter what happens, this <laughs> is not going to be the show for you because we will give you an honest, truthful take, even if it is hurtfully critical at some times. And I think that you'll probably get a mix of that on this episode, but, uh, yeah, it, this is not all peaches and cream when we talk about new Japan, even though we do you know, we're, we're very passionate about the product and very honest. And that's kind of where it always comes from. Yeah. So uh, what do you think about the, the Rambo? Um, you know, last week when we did the preview show with Chris Samsa, uh, we kind of talked about how the Rambo is sort of a mixed bag nowadays because it's less of getting on old timers and wacky uh, performers from the West and stuff like that. Sort of the fun aspect of it and there's still some of that here but uh it's kind of become more like the consolation prize for all those who are left off of new japan uh or off wrestle kingdom in general um there were a couple surprises and we'll talk about that but overall you know i, I don't know I, I don't necessarily love this iteration of the rambo for a couple reasons one they're working to get down to the final four as opposed to a singular winner. So it's a little less definitive. It always feels a little bit flat at the end. And you would always hope that maybe they're aiming to give you the best possible matchup for the next night, considering that the KOPW title is on the line, maybe try to elevate that thing a little bit. But every year it seems like most of the favored performers that you like get eliminated early and are kind of just you know and by the time you get like halfway through you're like looking around at the field and you're like damn like <laughs> yeah <laughs> who, who's still in this thing yeah i mean war dogs got eliminated early jeff cobb was out early it, there was a lot of solid guys you're like oh you, you could do a nice little four-way with some of the guys in here but they, yeah they were all gone pretty early yeah ishii gone early so some of that was kind of weird um 
that, that's pretty much my main take on it. At the same time, it still fulfills the role of just sort of being not too serious, a lot of preamble, kind of funny. Um, you know, new J- Japan in general is not known for having good battle royals to begin with, you know, so mm-hmm. it just is what it is. It's sort of just a, a fun pre-show sort of thing. Um, but I was kind of hoping, considering how, and, it, and it's not universal across the board, but generally speaking, over the last two years, we've gotten a good amount of serious KOPW matches, whether it was Shingo or Taichi or the efforts of Hanari to win the title. Like those men kind of elevated the role of the title beyond just the Yano haha shtick. And by the end of this, I was looking at who was in the match and I was like, oh, we're going, <laughs> we're going back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, th- I thought the match was fine. I agree with you. The whole, we talked about it last week, you know, ending on four, it's always kind of a flat finish because you, you're expecting it to be the last, you know, last man ending. And I think one of the cool things about the Rambo is you could get eliminated by pinfall submission. So a lot of times, you know, that, that final two, they essentially kind of have a little mini match at the end because you can do pinfalls and submissions and near falls. And so you could end with like two guys that have a nice little mini match, but with this whole final four thing that kind of throws that situation out. It just feels weird. Yeah, it feels really weird. Um, And yeah, when you get to the final four, like you mentioned, you know, Okan, Ishimori, Yano, and Yo, all fine guys. But again, you know, Yano, kind of the comedy guy. Yo came in here with a a track suit (laughs) with like sneakers and socks, which eventually came off. In the match, uh, as far as our surprises, we had a uh, Tiger Hattori coming out of retirement to referee this <laughs> match. <laughs> uh, then we had uh, Michinoku Pro's Vegeta uh, Junior Hayato, and then uh, New Japan Legend Takashi Iska, the, the Wild Man, came out there. And of course, we had the great reunion of him and uh, Tai Chi, where Tai Chi, you know, comes down to the ring with the Iron Claw, gives it to him. He Runs wild, we got tons of eliminations off of the, the Iron Claw. He had tried to, you know, make amends or make peace with Tai Chi, and Iska wasn't really having it. He's still a, still a wild man. Um, and it, once once they got eliminated, uh, Tai Chi was trying to control him. He attacked the the announcer that he always used to attack uh, back in the day, ripped off his uh, shirt. <laughs> well, you know, that was also kind of a funny thing. Like, Iska was offered the... Uh, House of Torture stable shirt to join the group, and he he tore it off Hogan style. Um, but because of his uh, you know unwillingness to align with Tai Chi, he actually cost Tai Chi, who was coming out of 2023 as the reigning KOPW champion. So, uh, granted, the title does restart, but normally you sort of expect the guy that won it the final you know the the year prior to sort of at least be in the four way. So. Tai Chi didn't even make it to the final four. Yeah, and um, again, who's in there very little time. He essentially was in there to set up the the Iska stuff, and then they both got eliminated pretty quickly after that. Yeah, you know, and I'm a big fan of Doki, and I know that they don't necessarily push him super hard, but considering he just won the Concorso and everything and his growing popularity, I thought maybe he, he might be in the final four a little run. Nah, he's gone. Jeff Cobb's gone. Hanare's gone. You know, the War Dogs, and it's like, damn. Like, <laughs> Ishii. But, um, you know, the stuff with Sho and Yo is also a highlight. So, you know, Yo comes out and he runs down to the ring and he's in a blue track suit with like slip on flip flop shoes and he's not in gear. And I don't know if like I don't really know what the deal is. They try to cover it on commentary and say, like, maybe he forgot his gear. Maybe that is what happened. But 
knowing yo you just don't know like he just might have been like fuck it no dude, one's watching dude's this. weird <laughs> yeah, he's weird so he just and he, and he was acting goofy the whole time like he he ran down you know and and he's doing all this goofy shtick and then show comes out and then he runs out they're fighting on the out on the actual runway and at one point he stole show's wrench and put it between his you know legs and started wiggling around like this <laughs> buffalo bill and fucking you know silence of the lambs and, and then he starts getting choked and he's like calling out for help and then suddenly Fujita Jr. Hayato, who was his tag team partner in the Super Junior Tag League, comes down and he, you're like, oh, he's going to save him. And But the funny thing is, Fujita now, Jr. That wasn't his partner. Uh, Musashi was his partner. Oh, my gosh. You're <laughs> right. Okay. But, you know, they did make the connection. Okay. And, and uh, granted, I skipped that entire tag league. So it <laughs> makes sense why I messed that up. But um, they did mention, you know, both of them kind of being from Michinoku Pro and him having that connection to uh, Fujita from that, you know, from that aspect. And I thought he was going to come out and save this man from getting choked, but he just like kind of leisurely, like he made sure to like do the Rhea Ripley stomp where he's like, or like Jeff Hardy, like, doing his dance before right. he comes down. Like he, he, he like poses for the crowd. This man's getting choked with the wrench and then he just slowly makes his way down. And then he just starts kicking both of them in the head. And I'm like, what, who laid this out? Like, who's the agent? Like, what the, what is this? <laughs> yeah. And then at one point, um, yo got put, like he got crotched on the top rope and then he just stayed there. Nobody messed with him. And he's just on the top rope for like, the, the whole last half of the match and then he just survived they just forgot about him on, on the top rope there yeah again it's weird dude is weird this is a guy that makes sculptures out of his poop uh so yeah <laughs> but yeah and then you know we wound up with the final four being uh <laughs> yo um okay who else was it? <laughs> Ishimori and Toriano. <laughs> Ishii or Ishimori and, and Toriano. So you kind of look at that. It's like, you know, all those guys had their strengths, but you just kind of know what you're in for when you're like, tomorrow we're getting a four-way between those guys for this title. You know what it's about. Like, and you're kind of hoping maybe best case scenario, Great Okan wins the belt and does something with it, but knowing him, he's so goofy too. You just so that that's just what it was. Yeah. And uh yeah. We move on. <laughs> so uh the main card then kicked off with the IWGP junior heavyweight tag team title match. The challengers, the super junior tag league winners, catch two two TJP and Francisco Akira defeated the champions, the Bull Club War Dogs of Clark Connors and Drilla Maloney, and of course, coming into this match, we had the whole storyline that played out on the road to Tokyo Dome Tour, where they had the coffin match on the second night. War Dogs won that match by putting TJP in the coffin. Then the press conference, we had teases of, you know, Akira saying, you know, you don't know what TJP is coming. And of course, for the entrance, they, they bring out the casket and uh, they open it up and out comes TJP as the Aswang, which is a uh, Filipino type creature. So he had this kind of crazy mask on and, and hat and red eye contacts. What did you think about uh, TJP's little get up here? Uh, I, I wasn't I wasn't a fan of it, honestly, <laughs> um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, 
I don't know how much they actually spent on that get up. It might've been a lot, but it didn't look like it was like a big league sort of, you know, gimmick get up. Like it didn't look like something that I, I, it wasn't that far off from what like evil and the other LIJ guys used to wear coming down to the ring a couple of years ago, you know, mm-hmm. like it just like party city bullshit. Um, and I also was like, I'd never heard of what what what'd you call it? the Aswang? The Aswang, yeah, it's some like Filipino creature. You know, I mean, good on TJP if he wants to play into his heritage and everything like that. I'm not gonna um, knock him on that aspect, but I just didn't buy the idea that Chris Charlton happened to have all of these factoids about what the Aswang was. Like, how did he know that ahead of time? Unless they fed him the notes, like you know. Francesco Akira is like, all right, he's going to come out as the Aswang. Here's what you need to know. <laughs> like, come on, bro. Like, no one has that, that shit, like, up their sleeve ready to go. Like, I don't know. And then the other thing about it was, um, I, I'll just tell you flat out, I, I wasn't a big fan of this match, considering the four guys that were involved and considering um, the history behind them and the quality of matches that they'd had prior to this. And the stage being the opening match for Wrestle Kingdom, um, I don't want to put them too much in a in a box, but you know there is sort of an expectation that you go out there and you have a kick-ass, high-flying, high-octane junior-style match. And this wasn't quite worked that way. You know, they really played into the the gimmick of the Aswing and this undead creature of TJP which to me was kind of unnecessary considering that there was a better story already laid out from the foundation with the fact that Drilla Maloney had once been a part of United Empire. He didn't vibe with those guys. He turned on them, joined War Dogs, and then they'd never been able to beat the War Dogs. So, you know, there's already mm-hmm. so many story elements at play. Why did we need to put this man in a coffin a week, pr- a week out from the match so that he could come out dressed up like a party city character and work a shittier style than what we've known TJP to work, who, who is an incredible worker. Um, this just didn't work for me. I'm sure for some other people it did, but I wanted high flying, high octane. You know, I, I heard them put him over on commentary saying that this was not far off from like a, a young bucks um, opener. And it, it was not like, it didn't work for me that way at all. And then the final thing I didn't like about it was during the press conference, the War Dogs introduced these beautiful new white IWGP junior title belts. And they're like, this is our legacy. This is going to replace those old beat up belts. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, these great new white strap belts. And then once I started paying attention, I realized like, oh, those are custom belts because the side plates have the War Dog symbols on them. And then I realized like, if they lose, they're not keeping those white belts around because they're custom made for the Bullet Club War Dogs. Well, I, I thought it was going to be like a WWE kind of thing where they change the side plates out. So I thought, oh, well, Catch You 2, when they'll put some Catch You 2 logos on Bro, there. Bro, it's New Japan. You know they don't do <laughs> shit like that. They don't got money. And it <laughs> came out the next night like with, back with the black straps. <laughs> uh, I knew the black straps were coming right back, which I was like, damn, that kind of sucks because I, I, I really liked the white belts. They looked clean. Yeah, um, I, I agree. If you got some of the points you made there, I I don't think we need the whole Aswang thing for TJP. Like you mentioned, there was a a story there already set up, and we've seen these teams have better matches. We've seen Catch Two Two in, in general have better matches. They're a really great tag team, and 
Um, I think that this stuff kind of hampered the match. Um, mm-hmm. over, but overall, there was still very good action. And the bell rang, and they immediately blitzed the War Dogs. They hit them with the, the leaning tower, which busted open uh, Drilla's uh, nose and mouth. And then they did the the assisted X Factor thing onto Clark Connors. And then uh, they were going for the knee knee, and that's where Bull Club War Dogs kind of came back around. They did the uh, the full clip to TJP out on the floor, and then chained him to the guardrail. Um, and then so then again it was kind of Akira kind of being the the babyface in peril, which Akira is great at taking a whooping and being that guy in peril. So they got a lot of heat on him until TJP was able to escape uh, the guardrail, kind of come back in and on a house on fire there. And then they uh, set up for hitting the uh, the big uh, knee knee, their double knee finisher there, and uh, catch two two are once again our junior tag team champions. I think one of the things for me is that. It- you know, make no mistake about it. I'm, I am a fan of TJP's work. I think he's a great worker. And I, I, I don't want to sit here and say he doesn't deserve his moment because he does. But at the same time, the guy that should be getting elevated on that stage for this team it should be uh, Francesco Akira. And instead, the match kind of became about this mythological creature, uh, you know, persona of TJP's. And the way it was presented wasn't in a way to where I'm like thinking, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't Finn Balor's demon where I was like, Oh, that shit's cool. I hope that comes back. It was somewhere. I was like, is he going to do this moving forward? <laughs> right. Well, I think you kind of <laughs> hit, hit the nail on the head on the preview show. You were like, he's going to do some kind of gimmick that will just be for Russell kingdom. And then the next night it'll be gone. And then pretty much. Yeah. You know, That's, new year's dash. Yeah. He, I think he had the red uh, contacts in, but besides that, like the whole, like, Mask he kept the and, mist. Yeah, he, he had the mist, but uh, he wasn't crawling around. He didn't have the mask on. So, yeah, right. it was this whole one-off kind of thing. And, again, it's cool if you want if he wants to dig into the, the Filipino culture and do something special. But this was just kind of a little goofy, a little too sports entertainment-y. Um, especially I think these, these four guys are really talented, and I just expected them to kind of they didn't they didn't have a bad match by any means like you mentioned but again i i'm also not a big fan of you know the dog collar choking it's a little too kinky snm for me like already um the 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 match they had in in cork and hall i thought was kind of you know it's kind of weird um and so they're kind of going back to that again here i don't know um but i would have rather if we were going to do like the face in peril and then, you know, the hot tag that it not just all be about this gimmick as much as it is a revenge story with them trying to get their comeuppance and finally prove themselves as the best team in the junior division. It, it became not about that. Yeah. You know, if they want to do a sports entertainment like angle, the thing they should have done was have Akira show up without TJP and it's a handicap match at ah. first. And then you have the whole, the casket pops open, TJP pops out, runs out, makes a save, hot tag, boom, boom, boom. As TJP. Right, you're right. As TJP, bam, 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 hot tag, you know, fill and flash, um, black mamba splash, get the win kind of thing, you know. You know, and for me, less is more. I would have been fine if he introduced a small aspect of an element. Like, you know, if he wanted to come in with the contacts and missed maybe some paint i'd be all for that that's fine you know what i mean i can i can suspend but you know 
for those of you who haven't seen the match, this man had like full on fingernail gimmick and weird clothes and a mask and he was biting people and blood was coming out of his mouth. And it was just like, we've crossed the line here. <laughs> yeah. This is, yeah. this is going into like a uh, mythical like, spooky. Yeah. It's like Lucha underground territory. Yeah. But overall, I mean, they are very good workers. It still had a, a I think a very good match could have been better, uh, but still, still a good opener for, for the show. Uh, then following that, we had the NJPW World Television title match. President Ace Hiroshi Tanahashi <laughs> defeats Zack Sabre Jr. to win the NJPW World TV title. Very good match. Uh, I, there was a lot I liked here. I was worried because I saw I saw a few days ago that Tanahashi had posted a picture and he had the curly hair again. And there's nothing I, I like less. Tanahashi, one of my favorite wrestlers of all time, but when he comes in with the curls, like the big curls, it's just awful. So I thought that maybe he was prepping that look for Wrestle Kingdom, which I was like, don't don't do this, Ace. Don't do that. But <laughs> nah, he, he straightened that shit out. He came in with the dual tone hair and the highlights looking like a million bucks. And, you know, uh, maybe he doesn't have the abs he had a few years ago, but that's all right. Because he's got a giant dinner plate belt that can hide <laughs> the, the lack of abs nowadays. And, and that is what is prominently displayed these days, which I thought was good. Yeah, uh, really fun matchup here. I thought this was a match that definitely played to obviously both men's strengths, especially Tanahashi. Uh, he's, he's not as agile as he once was, so because more of a kind of grappling uh, style matchup here worked for him. And you know, from the get go, they worked this match pretty quickly. Tanahashi was hitting sling baits pretty early, had a mm-hmm. the, the aces high and a, a near high fly flow. At the very beginning, uh, Zach had a near uh, clutch uh, win over Tanahashi in the near beginning, and then from there, yes, it was really great uh, grappling uh, back and forth until they kind of got into a, a pinning predicament where they're, they're trading roll-ups back and forth, back and forth, and then Tanahashi just kind of finally stacks him and gets the, the upset win here. Yeah, he might have uh, added a few pounds here and there. That might not allow him to be as agile as he once was, but that added weight gave him the leverage necessary to uh pin that skinny geek zach Jr. <laughs> but no in all seriousness zach is i don't know if you've noticed zach has put on some muscle lately and he's looking kind of jacked like and i it's been a slow progression but like just when i saw him and i wanted to mention this on uh the road to tokyo dome show i noticed i was like damn like he's put on a lot of muscle which you know that, that might be the randy orton thing you know getting <laughs> ready for a for a title run but um he came out in the all white, which I thought was awesome. And, you know, almost all the members of TMDK, unfortunately, Robbie was not there, but, uh, and neither was uh, Bad Dude Tito, but the rest of the members of TMDK seconded him, walked him out. And this man literally had a seven, 16, 17 successful title defenses over the course of a one year period, uh, really made this title feel special and then went out there and, really delivered with Tanahashi in a kind of unique match for those two. Um, I loved that Tanahashi was like you mentioned going for a lot of his signature stuff early. Uh, he hit a aces high right off, like very early in the match and then went yeah. for the high five low. And I was like, you know, you know, <laughs> squash, right squash. the president's going to squash. <laughs> um, I did have some, 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 you know, I don't, I wouldn't call it misgivings, but kind of like, um, uh, was just a little curious as to how all this is going to play out because again, Tanahashi's president, 
He is currently one third of the never open weight six man tag team champs. And now, you know, he's added another piece of hardware to his uh, collection currently. And, um, you know, it, it, it's going to be interesting to see where he sort of takes this uh, division. Um, I listened to a lot of audio in the lead up to Wrestle Kingdom from a variety of different, uh, you know, content creators. And one thing a lot of people kind of agreed on is there seemed to be a disconnect between the booking of this title and the initial message surrounding it when they first launched it a year ago, where they were saying it was going to be this high speed youth based title. And then Gato booked it to just be on Zack Sabre Jr. for the entire year. <laughs> and now they're booking it to be on Tanahashi. So it's sort of like, you know, they're telling the front office, like, you can kind of fucking shove it when it comes to uh, making us have a high speed title. But I do think Zach did a fantastic job elevating that title, making it something special. So much so that when people looked at that last year, they were calling it the dinner plate title and the Casio bell and making fun of the way it looked and saying how hideous it was. And now it's kind of one of the more respected prizes in the company. And I felt like he, he had a great match with Tanahashi on this stage. Yeah. To me, this definitely screams losing up for Zack Sabre Jr. Yeah. He had that great year long title run, a great matchup here. It definitely seems like there are are bigger plans for Zack coming up in this year. And yeah, good stuff here. Uh, Post match, Tanahashi he did a cut a promo, addressed the crowd, and kind of talking about um, you know wanting to take this title uh, further in into the year. So uh, good stuff there from uh, President Ace. And yeah, it's gonna be very interesting to see how he's booked with the title. Also, we'll talk about his first defense that he had at New Year's Dash. Uh, but what's it, what's gonna look like going forward? Because like you mentioned, yeah, the whole thing when the spell was created was like, all right, it's gonna be. You know, essentially the quote unquote U30 kind of, you know, the, the young man title, high speed kind of thing. That's not how it was booked. And we've, we've been kind of seeing that last year. There's a lot of miscommunication, like the office saying one thing, you know, we have these three musketeers, they're the future, they're the now, and then they're not winning big matches and being in big spots. And so, yeah, we're seeing this whole miscommunication thing. And hopefully with Tanahashi as president, there'll be maybe some more synergy behind what the company says and then what the booking actually lays out. Last, uh, last point I want to make on this subject, you know, Tanahashi, even though the match was very good and I felt like they worked a style that was um, complimentary to what he's able to do in the ring these days. I did notice at times he was having some trouble granted. He wasn't needing to run the ropes and do super athletic things, but even just like getting up, there were a few times where I was like, oh, <laughs> or even going to the top rope, you know, where he does the uh, he jumps over the top rope and then scales the, you know, he does it in that very specific Tanahashi way. But he struggles with it these days. And I'm like, man, his movement's just not what it was, even if he still has that worker's mind and and everything like that. And I'm wondering, given his new appointment, is this the last truly prominent singles title match that we see of Hiroshi Tanahashi in the Tokyo Dome. Not saying it will be, but if it is, hypothetically, if if he ends up spending more time focusing on, you know, the presidency and his office role as opposed to his in-ring performer role, um, this would, would have been hypothetically a great way to go out. Big win over a major star 
in a very entertaining match that I was probably like three and a half on. I, for an eight-minute match, I thought it was just really great. Yeah, I was uh, 3.75. Uh, really good stuff here. And yeah, it, it always helps to have uh, Tanahashi's name in the, in, the, in the lineage of a title. So moving on to the next match, we had a special singles match here with the Heat Storm. Yuya Uemura defeating the Gene Blast, Yota Suji, 10 minutes and 57 seconds. Yeah, very, very interesting match. Um, and I, I kind of have some mixed feelings on it, to tell you the truth, because um, I did want, just like everybody, I really, really wanted Uemura and Suji, as well as the other you know young guys like Kiyomiya and um, Narita and Umino, all those guys. I wanted all of them to kind of have prominent matches on this show, and they finally did end up having their matches and they got their time, but I kind of wanted the presentation to be bigger for them in some way. And the one guy that to me um, seemed to kind of get that was like Suji. Like mm-hmm. Suji came out the all white and I was just like, fuck, he looks like a star right now. Like this man is ready to go. He's a finished product. And Yui Mora came out and he didn't, he still doesn't strike me that way right now, even though I'm a big fan of his, I just didn't feel at the end of the day, like they put enough spotlight on these guys. It was almost, I don't, I don't know. I'm just speculating, but it almost kind of feels like their hand was forced to kind of get these guys on the card, but the, the positioning and the story around it, it almost feels like they're placating, you know, the office or the fans at this point. Um, the match itself, they got a decent amount of time. They went just under 11 minutes. Very good, but it didn't start to hit a truly emotional level for me till like the last couple minutes. They started breaking out some big high-risk stuff, which was very cool, and then it just kind of suddenly ended. Um, I don't think it's a bad – I think hopefully if the trajectory and expectation for these guys is that they're supposed to – be the future and they're supposed to be headliners for this company for years to come. And we can point back to this match as the first significant major meeting between them on a singles level. Then I I don't think it's a bad match to point to, but it just doesn't seem to have that same level of significance as some of the early matches we saw between like, for instance, Tanahashi and Nakamura or Tanahashi and Shibata. For instance, it's not it wasn't in that realm for me, which is kind of what I was hoping we'd be able to look at years to come and be like, remember when the first time they did this? And it didn't feel like that to me. Yeah, it felt like they were kind of restrained a little bit. I'll see here. They got just shy of 11 minutes kind of earlier on the card. You know, they weren't given the opportunity to, to go fully crazy like we know that they can go in which you kind of expect that for being only, you know, third on the main card here. Um, but overall, I thought still thought it was a very enjoyable match. Definitely agree. You know, Suji looked like a, an absolute star. Had a, a little bit of special, you know, entrance to his music. Had the special white gear. He looked great. And yeah, they, they wrestled this match um, pretty good for, with the time that they had. You know, from the pretty opening in the bell, uh, there was a, a, a gene blast off of a leapfrog to to, <laughs> to Yuya. Uh, that was dope. Uh, Su, Suji did this uh, brain buster like Falcon Arrow set out bomb thing. That was cool. They did, they did tease the uh, cork and hall finish where Yuya reverses the Gene Blast into an arm drag and then into a crucifix pin. 
uh, but Suji was able to kick out this time. Uh, Yuya busted out some uh, dragon suplexes for a near fall. I uh, thought that was smoother this time, though. The way he caught the spear into the arm drag, I thought it was smoother on this stage than the first time they did it. Yeah. And then eventually uh, Yuya was able to hit the, the dead bolt suplex, which was a uh, double overhook bridging suplex. So got the big win here. This was uh, Yuomoro's first match, first singles match back since being back from Excursion. And so a big one-up win here over Suji, even though Suji holds the the winning record over them. That's mainly in their the young line days. When you look at their now we're in the you know post graduation, Yuomura uh, kind of has the leg up, and I think there's definitely going right. to be a story there of Suji uh, wanting to get revenge and chasing up Yuomura. And you know, part of me really wanted Suji to win this match because a he just he looks like a star, he has the charisma. Uh, I, I think he could be a main eventer right now. But I do feel like because Yomura's kind of been lacking on the presentation, I do think it was important for him to kind of right. get that big win here to kind of level him up with Suji to be like, all right, he's not, you know, still this young lion boy. Like he's established guy and he can get a win over a, a fellow peer like Suji. Yeah. And, and you know what? Um, I'm not opposed to the idea that Yuomura maybe perhaps has Suji's number or Suji has a goal to attain in chasing um, Yuomura. But it just, for me, like you mentioned, I feel like Suji is the more kind of accomplished and established guy. And for me, Yuomura having to chase him is the more natural fit just because that's what everyone that sees the two of them is already seeing on paper, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um But at the same time, the match was good. One thing you didn't mention I thought was cool. I can't remember the exact thing, but I remember like Yuimor was doing something where he came off the top rope, some sort of flip, and then he got super kicked out of the air. Yeah, I think he was going for one of his big like cross bodies because he's doing his kind of rookie to Dragon Steamboat like uh, cross body moves. Yeah, that was cool. They did a lot of cool stuff. Uh, it, It wasn't worked at all like any of the Young Lion matches they'd had prior to excursion. And one of the big stories they've been telling is the, the contrast and styles that these two guys have, you know, where Suji is very flashy and has mixed in a lot of the Yave and the Lucha Libre and stuff like that. Um, you is very much more technical based, you know, traditional pro wrestling kind of refining the basics and sort of mastering that stuff as opposed to expanding the moveset. And so just different philosophies and that sort of played out here. Um, But what I was hoping at the end of it, even though I thought the match was good, I was like, all right, well let's give them till tomorrow because it's new year's dash. And maybe there will be some sort of, even if it's apart from one another, because I didn't expect them to be on the opposite side of the ring the next night. I was like, both of these guys will have some sort of follow-up, to further their story moving, you know, past this match. And then we'll circle back to it when the time's ready. Um, and spoiler alert, they, they're kind of just still where they were before this match started, you know, and we'll talk about it when we get to new year's dash, but they ended up opposite one another. They're still kind of beefing. They ended up grabbing each other's hair. And what this reminds me of and why I'm a little bit, hesitant to put my faith and trust in the story that's unfolding in front of us is because we already saw what happened this year in the G1 when all the young guys were put in the A block and they all wrestled each other and they were given the quote unquote spotlight. 
And when it was all said and done, they were all still at the same level and nobody was higher or lower. They were just where they were prior to having those matches. Nobody talks about or remembers that they even happened. And I kind of felt that way about this match. Like at the end of it, I was like, is Yumura better off? Is Suji better off? Where where are we going next? And I don't think there was a strong follow-up the next night. Yeah. And again, we've been talking about this, you know, all last year. It's the booking of these young guys. And it's like, all right. If you want to get these guys up and running, like they need to be in there with the established guys and getting wins over the established guys. Like if you want to make these guys, if you want, you know, random Joe Schmo Wrestle Kingdom viewer watches Wrestle Kingdom Dominion, you know, watches New Japan twice a year. If you want him to see Suji as a main eventer, put him in there with Okada, you know, more stuff with Will Ospreay. Have him in a G1 block with Naito. Build some tension there. Like, there are things you could do to elevate the all these guys and get them on the same playing field as your Naitos and Okadas and Chingos. And that's not what they're doing here yet. To me, they're almost kind of still stuck in the young lion phase a little bit because as a young lion, that's all you really wrestle is your peers and you get wins over your peers. You don't really, you're not really mixing it up a ton with the established guys obviously there's the mixed tags and stuff like that but you don't see a bunch of singles with young lions against a naito or tanahashi they're wrestling the new japan dads yeah. um so if they really want them to kind of break out and not kind of still be seen as this you know younger inexperienced talent they need to be more programs with the established guys and getting wins over those guys yeah and don't get me wrong i mean this didn't ruin them by any means and it, we got a lot of year left to go uh, there's tournaments and all sorts of stuff coming but you know if this was 2018 i'd be sitting here being like trusting gato <laughs> he's our, our trust but in 2024 i don't feel that same way and i'm a little bit hesitant to say like you know just trusting him because it's coming and maybe it will but at the same time i've seen them drop the ball with some guys and i hope that's not what's happening here i hope that they put a little bit more faith in them because i feel like they have the goods. Yeah. Um, one thing we forgot to mention before we move on to the next match, and I, I just want to make mention of this. There was a story that came out about Clark Connors. Um, I, I don't remember if it's Sean Ross Sapp or Fightful. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was, yeah, uh, Sean Ross Sapp from Fightful. Oh, he is Fightful. Yeah. See, I don't follow these guys, so I never know. <laughs> but uh, I saw that they they mentioned that Clark Connors is not under contract or wasn't at the time of their reporting and going into the Tokyo Dome and everything. He also was without contract. Um, so far, the presentation of him losing the title and then the follow-up the next night seems to indicate that he, he'll be around. But they were saying that they, there are ongoing negotiations between him and New Japan, which you know it, it is that time of the season. But I thought it was interesting that they brought up his name specifically and that there doesn't seem to be as of the time of this recording, resolution to his contract status yet. Yeah, again, he's he's a guy that needs to be locked down. And you mentioned it in, in a group chat, uh, I think yesterday, how these LA Dojo guys are kind of the black sheep of the roster. You know, him, mm -hmm. uh, Gabe Kidd, and Alex Coughlin, a lot of these guys, anybody kind of affiliated with the LA Dojo doesn't really get the, the treatment like the rest of the roster guys from the Noge Dojo. And I, I think he's a, he's a, he's a great uh, guy to have on the roster. I think he's really, you know, coming to himself in the whole Bull Club War Dog role. I, I love the War Dog unit. I think it would be really sad to lose him to an AEW or WWE. So hopefully, uh, you know, if contract season around, um, that the New Japan sees it as a priority to get him locked up and 
he can have him uh, going forward. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more I can say about the the L.A. Dojo legacy, but I'll probably save it for another day. <laughs> uh, so following matchup, we had the House of Torture team of evil and sold out Ren Narita. They defeated Kaito Kiyomiya and Shota Umino seven minutes and six seconds. Yeah. Um, and you forgot to mention, you know, House of Torture. They had Dick Togo, Sho, Kanemaru. And Yujiro all, all make uh, their presence felt and known in this match. Whereas Kiyomiya and Oiwa, or I'm sorry, Kiyomiya and Umino just had Ryohei Oiwa as their second. Um, seven minutes and six, seven minutes and six seconds. Uh, we got the big entrance for Shota Umino where he came out on the motorcycle. As we've you know come to know when it comes to Umino, he does the big entrances. Um, I, I was wondering like what kind of fucking bike he was on because I was like I, I was hoping he'd come out like on a Harley, you know, Japanese but, badass. Yeah, Japanese badass. But it was like <laughs> it looked like the kind of like motorcycle like my granddad might you know, ride. But whatever, it's cool. You know, it's different. Uh, it's not quite Triple H at WrestleMania, but it, it, it works. Um, I I didn't and I granted I might have been not paying as much attention as I needed to. Did Kiyomiya get an entrance or was he just out there waiting for Amino? Because I didn't recall him coming out no yeah yeah he had entrance they played his whole his you know his his normal music he he got a nice pop he made his way out and then umino came out second on the motorcycle i've been having trouble with with the new new japan world app where like if i try to rewind stuff it might crash so like i was like fuck did he get music and i was like i'm not gonna risk it like let's just keep rolling (laughs) so um but yeah the, the this match was when you envision what the worst version of a bullshit laden House of Torture match might look like this was pretty much it. Uh, aside from them turning out the lights, they did everything. You know, they did the grope, they did you know the choppy choppy, the PP, they did the ref bump. You know, removing the turn turnbuckle pad, like you know everything. Like there was nothing that they didn't do. Um, and I mean, everybody kind of got their shit in. You know, there was wrenches and. You know, Centauri specials and all, all, all their gimmicks. And then, you know, finally at the end there, um, you know, and what's what's Narita's new nickname? Sold out. Yeah. Big fan of WCW in 1997. <laughs> the the uh, sixth member of the House of Torture. <laughs> yeah, six. <laughs> Ren Narita. Um, yeah, he's been using, and we didn't mention this on last week's episode, but he's been using the push-up bar from the LA Dojo or from the New Japan Dojo, and he's now reinforced it with like a metal plate, and that's kind of been his weapon of choice to try and win matches. So apparently every member of House of Torture has to have some sort of gimmick, and that's his gimmick. But I do think in this uh, particular story, it makes sense because there is the symbolism between him and him and Umino having their history going back to the no gay dojo together and them using that push-up bar for various exercises and you know all the the grueling history that goes behind that and i think that's a kind of a cool little nod but at the same time it's still just a piece of wood and he's fucking up you know he's hitting him with a a, another object which it's the sixth guy in this group that does that shit and Mm -hmm. at, at the same time i'm sitting there being like yeah, well, Umino loses, so I guess that's the continuation of that story. Cool. What the fuck are we doing with Kiyomiya? Like, why is he even here? <laughs> you know, keep in mind, a year ago, this guy shoot kicked 
Okada in the face, and he was seen by the public as a formidable foe when it came to Kazushka Okada, the ace of New Japan. A year out, if you told me he should go after such and such title, I couldn't even get behind you, you know, and be like, yeah, he should do that because he's done pretty much nothing but lose in this company. And then he lost again here in the Tokyo Dome. And, you know, I don't, I don't get it really. Yeah. The, the booking of Kiyomiya in New Japan has been uh, very weird. Uh, as far as this match, uh, the, the good thing about it, it was kept very short. Just shot. That's why you went three on it? Yeah, just seven minutes. Like, hey, <laughs> if, if you want to do this House of Torture BS and you want them running around, jumping out of the clown car, everybody coming out with their weapons, keep it nice and short. Um, mm-hmm. and, and even though Narita is cheating more, he's still Narita. There's still glimpses of some of the cool stuff he does. He is the uh, one guy doing cool stuff in the group. Yeah, and so him and Umino, when Umino finally got his hands on it, Umino was, you know, wearing him out like a dog, and they had some good st- <laughs> <laughs> good exchanges and stuff like that. Uh, but, yeah, towards the end, uh, Yujiro distracted the ref, which allowed Narita to hit uh, Umino with the push-up bar, and then he hit his uh, version of the X-Factor, which he calls the double-cross spike, and got the win over Umino. And uh, I like that name better. <laughs> and uh, so another big loss here for Umino, and so, yeah, clearly the story here is Umino is going to continue to chase Ren Narita until he can finally get Narita one-on-one and finally beat him. Which which is fine. Um, I personally, I echo some of those same concerns I had concerning the other uh, Musketeer match leading up to this one, um, where I'm wondering where the, how this is going to elevate those two guys. But I guess we got to let it play out. Um, at the same time, I'm sitting there thinking about just a couple months ago, Umino and Will Ospreay. And I'm like, maybe, maybe he should be doing stuff like that because he seemed like at the end of that match was like, this guy could be the fucking ace. And instead he's, you know, fifth match of the night, you know, mucking it up with house of torture, getting hit with a fucking (laughs) (laughs) push up bar and getting push up bar. You know, and maybe, you know, there's, again, it's not like his career is over, but I, I don't know. See, that's the thing. And this is part of what my complaint is. Really love Wrestle Kingdom. I really see this as being like the best that New Japan has to offer when it comes to their brand. And a, a special guy like Umino, who is supposed to be like the ace of the company, I would like to see him go out there and do something special. Mm-hmm. And aside from him riding a motorcycle, nothing about this felt special uh, uh yeah there's definitely a failure to follow up on, on big moments uh umino after that osprey match i mean that match is um got great votes in our uh match of the year poll for our year in awards ton of buzz people saw umino the top star after that match so mm-hmm. you would think that the normal thing is all right let's follow up by I don't know, having him win World Tag League, have him in a championship match, or let's follow up and put him up against uh, an established guy that he can actually beat and get over more. And same thing with Suji. Had that awesome match with Osprey. Uh, what's the follow-up? Just just a singles match, a few more. Like they're, These guys have these big matches, these big moments, and yeah, they lose, but then, all right, the follow-up should be getting them to something to where they can win and kind of catapult themselves to the next level. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to play quarterback Booker, but I mean, could have been in the TV title match, could have been in the never title match. Great opponents in both of those matches probably would have been awesome. But and and both those matches, 
in and of themselves were great, but that's to Umino's detriment because he's mucking it up with House of Torture. It kind of sucks. But yeah. Um, yeah, we move on. Yeah, so following that, we had the never open weight title match, and Tama Tonga defeats the dragon Shingo Takagi to once again capture the never open weight title 13 minutes and 46 seconds. Tama Tonga, I, I said some harsh things last week when I was doing the, the pre-show, and I said, you know, for, for all the talk about, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I basically said this was your opportunity to go out there on the big stage with one of the best big match performers in the history of professional wrestling. And if you wanted to prove that you could really go on that level as a top guy, this was your chance. And I really, really, really truthfully in my heart did not think that he was going to be able to do it. I was wrong. I feel firmly and strongly that this was easily the greatest and best performance of Tamatonga's career thus far. I was blown away at the action between him and Shingo Takagi, especially considering the previous match that they had was very good, but it wasn't anything that I was like, I need to see that again. And there was nothing in the buildup to this match that, made me excited to see this in fact almost unanimously you you uh kind of listened to what the buzz was from the fan base from the content creators you know people in the know this was like the the most reviled match on the show the one thing that people were like i don't know why this is happening there's no need for it and they fucking killed it in the tokyo <laughs> dome i mean they fucking blew me away so, and people are gonna think i'm crazy when i say this but I mean this wholeheartedly. This was easily my match of the night. I'm not saying it was my favorite match. I'm saying this was the fucking best match that occurred on January 4th in the Tokyo Dome. I know not everyone's going to agree with me. Jeremy, I don't think you agree with me. I do not. But, um, <laughs> but, but I, was, I was thoroughly impressed. I thought this was just stellar work from both men. Yeah, I I do agree with you as far as the match being great. I I did love this match. It was better than their G one draw, better than the the match they had here uh, in the U S. Uh, so yeah, Tamak Tong came out here, put his, his big boy shoes on here, and had a great match. Or I don't know if it was Shingo being like, "Hey man, like we're in the dome. I always show out in the dome, so <laughs> you gotta step it up, pal." <laughs> uh, either way, they had a great match, and from the get go, you had your traditional kind of never style hard hitting the shoulder block exchanges. You know, big lariats. Um, Shingo busted out the uh, Takagi Konhilo, uh big dive over the top. We, we had uh, Tama hitting a super reverse gun stun uh, pretty early on, hitting the uh, the SRC. Uh, Shingo blocked the Supreme Flow. He hit a big superplex on a Tama Tonga. We had a great uh, gun stun reversal where uh, Shingo was going for Made in Japan and Tama reversed it into a gun stun. That looked uh, That was great. so sick. Yeah, he said up perfectly. Um, Tama hit the, the Styles Clash, which got a, got a great pop there. He uh, hit the uh, Bloody Sunday. Yeah, he started of, hitting like all the big moves from the former uh, leaders. Yeah, so he did that. Um, and yeah, it's kind of great back and forth exchange there. It was a great uh, near fall uh, from the gun stun where Tama almost had it, but Shingo uh, kicked out. Uh, but then eventually uh, Shingo hits him uh, with the, the DTS. DST, his uh, version of the J-Driller, and got the win and is now a four-time never-open-weight champion. And uh, 
great match. We did get news um, in Tama's uh, post-match um, comments that he will be finishing up with New Japan Pro Wrestling um, at the end of the month. Yeah, I I was actually I wasn't spoiled on the match, but I was spoiled on the announcement that he was leaving, and thus I was thoroughly convinced that he was going to lose this match. I'm like, fuck, like, you know. And then I started like putting two and two together. I was like, oh, maybe this is why they switched the title off of him back, you know, a few months ago. And maybe I, I started thinking about. It. I was like, I was trying to like do the you know timeline thing where i was like okay he tells new japan he's leaving going to america they're like well we got to get the title off of him and then put you know have him put a guy over on the way out so i'm i'm here thinking like okay this all makes sense like he's gonna lose and then i'm i'm watching the match really enjoying it but fully expecting shingo to win and and then shingo oh you for also forgot to mention shingo hits him with uh his own stun gun yeah yeah that was great that was pretty cool um then he he pins shingo and i was like wait what like he hits him with the j driller and all that and then i was like oh my god he's leaving the company and he, he just won the never title like this is crazy um so and that kind of threw my whole theory in a, a wrench in the monkey works like i don't know what the timeline was i don't know if um he, i listened to the post-match promo and he basically said during the press conference that he just decided today i I don't know if that's him working or or what i don't know when new japan was made aware or if they even did know it is it is a very precarious um booking decision if hypothetically they knew he was leaving and they decided to still put the strap on him although I wouldn't be totally surprised by that because he is such a company man and has been for so many years that this might be one last like gold watch sort of attaboy. You've earned it because he is really beloved in that office and by the the people in that company. And it seems like, you know, coming out of New Year Dash that they they de- they definitely have a, a direction they're going for the never title post Wrestle Kingdom. So Yeah. I was definitely surprised at hearing that news after he won the matchup. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see kind of what's going to happen next for him. Obviously, he's going to America. So does that mean AEW, WWE, TNA? There's a lot of uh, options there for uh, Tamatonga. But definitely had a great dome match here. Kind of got his gold watch moment, his, his little attaboy moment. So, uh, shout out to Tamatonga, and we'll see what happens next with uh, the Never title. Um, then before the next match, we had uh, Nick Nemeth, formerly uh, known as Dolph Ziggler, and his brother Ryan Nemeth coming down to ringside to sit in the uh, VIP section. Uh, big, you have to take your brother energy here <laughs> uh, for the duo. Uh, but yeah, we, <laughs> we would see what would happen uh, with uh, Nick and Ryan later on in the show. But yeah, definitely felt like, you know, Nick called his parents was like, you know, I'm going to the Tokyo Dome. And they were like, you're bringing Ryan with you, right? And he's like, uh, I, uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, yeah, I don't know uh, what the deal was with that. But I thought that the presentation uh, was very interesting. It had sort of the NXT, uh, you know, oh, my God, I can't believe so-and-so is in the crowd sort of energy, which I like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that part was cool. 
So then uh, following that, we had the IWGP tag title slash NJPW strong openweight tag team title match. And the Gorillas of Destiny, El Fantasmo and Hikaleo defeated Bishamon to become the 100th IWGP Tag Team Champions. And they are now champ champ, double champs, dual champions. Yeah, we were one of the many (laughs) different podcasts that uh, was able to interview uh, the Gorillas of Destiny 2.0. here on this podcast. And if you haven't listened to that interview, definitely go back and check it out. Very great stuff. But, um, you know, they, they pretty much predicted and called their shot and said what they were going to do. And they went out there and they had a really good to great match with Bishamon. It, it maybe didn't quite live up to the 40 minute epic. That was the world tag league finals, but rarely does the match, um, at the Tokyo Dome live up to the World Tag League Finals. Just it's totally different slotting and different pacing and everything's different at that point. But um, they broke out some of the big guns. I loved uh, Hikaleo um, coming off the top rope, doing the big splash, which uh, he did that during Tag League, but he landed a lot better (laughs) this time. And uh, they told a great story. And, you know, I, I wasn't sure which way they were going with things. There was definitely an aspect to um, the media tour that G.O.D. were doing where they kept bringing up their contract status. And, you know, I don't know if anyone that listened to our interview with them, we picked up on that and we didn't really harp on it because I think we were kind of trying to do more of like what I perceive as being like a kayfabe interview. I also sort of thought that's what they were (laughs) going to, to aim for, but then I listened to some of the other podcasts that they did uh, much more candid conversations, much more based in reality. And they were pretty much, you know, alluding to the idea that they didn't know what was going to happen. And if they dropped the ball here, they didn't know if they're going to stick around. And I was like, huh, like, are these guys, are they working? Are they shooting? Like, you know, they're trying to <laughs> the angle for, you know, a call from Tony or Vince or, or, you know, Paul, um, or are they just trying to build some intrigue surrounding, a potential title win and it looks like for now and who knows again it's still contract season but looks like with them getting that big push uh you know unifying the titles or one would assume it will be unified titles um you know and getting that career moment the big win in the tokyo dome that this is kind of the future for that t- that team and um at the end of it i was like okay well they they brought out um the nemeth boys just before this match, maybe they're kind of angling for a tag team feud with those guys down the road, but it, it kind of feels like maybe that's not the way they're going. Yeah. Um, overall, I, I did enjoy the match. It, it was kind of hard for them to, you know, live up to the World Tag League final and the match that they had um, in their block as well. Uh, but still, a really good match up here. There was two really great near falls. There was a spot where... Uh, Bishamon had ELP isolated. They hit him with the Shoto, which is their big uh, tag team finisher. But then uh, Hikaleo run, ran in to uh, break it up and uh, got the great near fall there. And then there was also um, a spot there where uh, ELP hits the sudden death on Goto. Uh, Hikaleo hits the Godsend choke slam, and then ELP does the Super Thunderkiss 86 which is their big tag move, which then uh, got a great near fall. Goto kicking out of that. 
Uh, but then they followed up pretty quickly. ELP hit Goto with the CR3, which is the uh, pile driver variation of the CR2. Then Higaleo, like you mentioned, went on top, hit the big splash on Goto. One, two, three. They become double champs. So good moment there for GOD. And like you mentioned, yeah, very interesting to see kind of what's going to play out with them. Because like as you mentioned on all those interviews, they made it pretty clear that they're contracts are up at the end of the month and they don't know what's next for them and we know you know Hikaleo's brother Tama is apparently leaving and going to be based in America so what does that even leave for this G.O.D. faction um you know they're still going to be G.O.D. with Tama gone we haven't seen Tangaloa um in, in a few months either so I think a lot of questions up in the air for the, the stats of their faction uh their New Japan status but I mean as for now they are double champions and um to me, it seems like they're sticking around just kind of based off of how things are going with them. Yeah, that's what I would assume, but you just never know this time of the year. Anything is possible. Um, and that is one of the kind of bittersweet, but also exciting aspects when it comes to New Japan and the way that their uh, contracts work. You know, it, it is usually annual based and kind of wraps up sometime between January and, you know, like mid March, like mid February, early March at the latest, basically. So Mm -hmm. uh, anything is possible. But as of right now, I mean, huge win for those guys, career win, you know, 100th champions, unified titles. Like that's a that's a big thing. And I'm hoping that they get a I don't I don't know if I want to say lengthy title run because um, I I just want to see that division kind of develop and sort Mm -hmm. of, you know, um, thrive. I don't know if the next title challengers that they, that they have um, uh, give me a lot of confidence, but it seems like that's probably going to be a give me title defense, and we'll get to that in a bit. But then beyond that, I'd like to see them have you know great matches with uh, you know great tag teams and and kind of move the division forward. Yeah. So now following that, we had the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Title Match: El Desperado defeats Hiromu Takahashi. In 14 minutes, 21 seconds to become the new junior heavyweight champion. Yeah. So this was a a really interesting title match because we've already seen Desperado and Hiromu wrestle numerous amount of times um, in their history. There was a really uh, incredible write-up from Voices of Wrestling. Do Do you know who did that? Uh, I think the guy, I think it's Jojo Remy. I think it's the guy's name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That makes sense. So Jojo Remy, he did like an exhaustive, um, kind of just story beat analysis of the full feud and history between Desperado and Hiromu leading into this match, which if you haven't checked that out, I, I highly recommend you go out of your way and give that a read. We share. Uh, I'm that sorry. It's our- uh Jay Michaels guy's name. Oh, okay. Jay Michael. Yeah. Jojo, both of those names sound very familiar. So I just kind of assumed that's who it was. My bad. Um, yeah, it might be his like Twitter name or something like that. Or something. No, I think his uh, Twitter name is like Remington Van Despy or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, something yeah. like that. Jay Michael. Anyways, yeah. Voice of wrestling.com. Yeah. You should definitely check it out. If you haven't read it, it's extremely informative, but you know, um, from Hiromu's storyline standpoint, you know, he's held the title for a year and his whole goal has been to surpass uh, Minoru Tanaka slash Heat's um, all-time title defense record, which I think is 11 title defenses for the for the belt. 
And, you know, this was just another notch in his goal to get beyond that point. And then from like Desperado's view, something that he talked about in the lead up of the match was that he sort of, you know, didn't see himself necessarily as the, the ace of the junior division. Like that's kind of been Hiromu's firm placement. And he sort of has seen himself expanding out of that role. And we've seen throughout the year, he's been doing death matches and taking excursion matches and working in open weight and trio, you know, um, capacities. And now they kind of, these two men kind of are converging back over the title that they've fought for numerous times before. And the last time they were in the Tokyo Dome, Desperado beat Hiromu. So I kind of just thought we were going 50-50, going to kind of continue the the Hiromu, you know, his goal to beat the all-time record of 11 and kind of move forward. And one of the things that they mentioned on um, commentary was that Hiromu was like, I will never fight Desperado in another match if it's not the main event moving forward. So I was like, okay, then maybe like they have this match, he wins, and then they do the big main event down the road or whatever that might be when, you know, once he's surpassed the the record. And then they went out there and, yeah, they they had like a sub 15-minute match. It was very good. I wouldn't call it one of their best matches, but it was very good. But Desperado kind of just kicked Hiromu's ass and then pinned him definitively. And I was kind of shocked by that. And I'm not necessarily opposed to it. And I know there's a big segment of the fan base that wanted Hiromu to get the fuck out of there. <laughs> and they weren't necessarily enthralled with the second half of his title reign to begin with. They were kind of felt like it was long in the tooth. But I was really shocked here. Yeah, I was not expecting uh, Desperado to win because it seemed like they were really set on this whole story of Hiromu beating the all-time junior defense record and kind of really building him up to kind of solidify him as uh, the best junior in New Japan history. And we talked about it last week. This match lacked buildup. You know, it just kind of came out of nowhere of Despi challenging Hiromu. There wasn't really a ton of preview matches or anything to really kind of heat this thing up. They were just kind of going off of their past rivalry, which at times can be fine. But I really feel like this match needed something to, for the buildup besides, all right, hey, we're just wrestling again. Uh, and I did thought the match was uh, very good. They've had also they've had way better matchups, and I feel like this match was missing kind of a a big moment to put it over the edge. Like there was no like mass ripping spot, uh, you know, nothing like on that kind of level, which may really elevate the match to the next level or really get you emotionally involved. Like they went out here and had a great tile defense, but it wasn't like that epic next level. Like, this should have been the main event of the Tokyo Dome kind of thing. And I, I do think that their matches work better when they are the main focus of the show. Uh, when they get kind of stuck here, you know, they were, you know, eighth match overall here. Um, you, you know that the, the final three matches are going to get a ton of time and more focus and feel bigger. And their matches did not, just didn't feel as big as what was going to come following um, their match. Yeah, and I think that's a bit of a shame considering there was that period of time, um, and I know I'm probably dating myself a little bit here, but when you go back to like Wrestle Kingdoms like 9, 10, 11, where the junior title match was not just given 
uh, a good amount of time, but it was also a major focal point of the, I mean, hell, even just a couple of years ago, you think about Hiromu versus um, Will Ospreay, which was probably the last truly great, I mean, really great, you know, Tokyo Dome junior match. Um, and considering the history between Hiromu and Despi, I would have liked to maybe seen more. Um, don't get me wrong. This I feel like this was a fitting um, storytelling match in terms of like the mythos of their ongoing legacy with one another. And once it was all said and done, I was like, okay, uh, I guess this kind of makes sense because now with Hiromu making that statement, like I will never fight this guy unless it's the main event, there is a goal and who knows if it will happen, but hypothetically, if they ever decide to let these guys headline the Tokyo dome, or if they ever move back to like two nights and give them one of those nights and give them the, the fake Tokyo domain event, sort of the, <laughs> the Bianca Belair, uh, Sasha Banks spot, then maybe that's a, a possibility. And that might be something for them to work towards down the line. But um, one thing that I also thought was kind of curious was, um, and I haven't even like looked at it, but like, how many title defenses did Hiromu end up having anyways? I want to say it was like, he got to like V7, I think. Okay, I'm going to look. I know we're <laughs> live on the air. But um, but while I looked it up, I do think there was some, some good stuff in the match. I mean, Despi started okay. the match with a, a big tope dive. Um, Hiromu did the shotgun drop kick to the outside of the barricades. Uh, Despi worked over the knee the match for the uh, numero dos attempts he did a great uh super spinning back suplex off the top uh Hiromu busted out the Hiromu chan bomber his kind of version of the pumping bomber um that's being the guitar del and hell there's a, a pinche local near fall until at the end he did a j driller and then did the pinche loco to uh, get the win so yeah i mean he had the seven matches um that were successful title defenses this year but then he also defeated like Amakusa in Noah. He defeated Yamato in Dragon Gate. Um, he defeated Rising Hayato in All Japan. He defeated uh, Fujita Junior Hayato in Michinoku Pro. And he defeated uh, Kazuki Harada in DDT. So that's like five. So, you know, you take those seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. If hypothetically they had wanted, for him to actually break the record, then you could have just made all of those matches title matches and they would have worked as title matches because we've seen Zack Sabre Jr. travel all across the world with the world with the world TV title and rack up successful title defenses. I don't see why Hiromu couldn't have done the same thing here. And for whatever reason, they just didn't and he didn't end up breaking the record. Yeah, I think it's just one of those things that we've said in the past where sometimes guys kind of shoot their own angles in those post-match comments. And because he was doing it so much, it did kind of seem like, all right, that's actually the direction. But it looks like it's just one of those things where they get the mic backstage and they just say what they want to say and kind of create their own stories and narratives, but it doesn't always play out in the booking. And so it kind of like that's what happened here. Like, it's obviously that was Hiromu kind of maybe politicking, campaigning to do that, but clearly there was either a change or that was never the, the plan from the get-go. Um, but overall, still a, a very good matchup here. And, 
yeah, we'll see what things look like now for Desperado as a champion and who's going to be uh, queued up for him um, coming up in the new beginning tour. Yeah. Uh, one last thing. I loved uh, the red gear that Desperado had for this match. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how I feel completely about uh, Hiromu's um, gear. He was with the bullshit again this year. The shorts. <laughs> It wasn't just the shorts, but like the the whole get up for his entrance, which was like he just keeps adding tentacled creatures to his like jacket more <laughs> yeah. and more. Um, I also was sort of a little surprised at the lack of Lij wins on this night because everyone was sort of expecting the golden roll call with Naito, and I sort of thought that maybe the other guys in the group needed to be picking up wins, but then you had, you know. Suji go down and then you had Shingo go down and then you had Hiromu go down. And I was like, damn, you're going to have a, you're going to have to, you know, card out a bunch of losers at the end of the night. <laughs> yeah. I think that they, they probably did that to kind of set up um, a tease. Like, Oh, well, all the LJ is losing. Can Naito actually win? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely possible. Yeah. So uh, following that, we had the IWGP global heavyweight title three-way match to determine the first champion and the rebel david finley defeated john moxley and will osprey in 22 minutes and 17 seconds to become the first iwgp global heavyweight champion yeah um so uh we saw the unveiling of the new global title yesterday or the day prior to this uh at the press conference and you know, Jeremy, when I first saw it, I was like, that's a pretty solid looking title. I, I like it. It's not bad. Um, you know, a lot of people talking about the fact that it's a white strap. Like we had pretty much predicted on this show that it would be a returning white strap title, mm-hmm. uh, sort of the spiritual successor to the IWGP Intercontinental title. But after seeing that live on the show and then seeing it the next day as the champion brought it out, uh, you know, to the ring. I think that I prefer this belt and its design over the IWGP Intercontinental title. In fact, I would go as far as to say right now in New Japan, I think this is the best looking title design they have across the board. Yeah, I thought the new title looked great. You know, we saw, like you mentioned, at the press conference on January 3rd, and then also seeing it all, all throughout the night here on Wrestle Kingdom and then New Year's Dash. Yeah, I think the title looks great. I, I love a white strap title. Of course, you know, Growing up in the 90s, you know, you're, I think we're all kind of marks for that, you know, that white, you know, Intercontinental strap and, and then kind of seeing what New Japan did with the Intercontinental title, um, you know, kind of do the Nakamura era and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I think the white strap looks great. And, you know, a, a lot of people really wanted it to be just called Intercontinental. But like we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, like that would be New Japan admitting that they failed, uh, that the whole merging of the title was failing. So, Essentially, like you said, spiritual successor here with this global heavyweight title. Um, and I know that for you, Shingo and Tama was your match of the night. For me, this was my match of the night. I I pretty much loved this match. It was almost a, a near perfect match for me. I just thought there was so many. You know, I'm a big moves guy. I thought there was a lot of cool moves, a lot of intensity um, here in this matchup. Um, at the, the press conference, you had you know Osprey and... Moxley kind of agreed to a five-minute, you know, ceasefire that they would take out Dave Finley 
in the first five minutes and then have the match that they were supposed to have. That's exactly what happened. They came out here. They beat the crap out of Dave Finley. Walk a dog with this man. Uh, they put him through a table. Then they had started having their match. And, you know, Osprey and Moxley have great chemistry. We saw that at Windy City Riot. And then that, that one four-way, that Juice won. Um, yeah, these guys just have really great chemistry. And so I'll, hopefully that's one of the first big feuds for Will um, and AEW. But then they were kind of doing their thing. I thought it was funny. They actually like did the, the shield powerbomb to Finley through the table. So that was pretty funny. Um, yeah. And then from there, they just, there was just so many great moves and sequences. Um, there was uh, Moxley hit this big high angle suplex on Will, dropping him right on his neck. Uh, Moxley caught the os cutter and did a sleeper suplex. Uh, that was crazy. And then Osprey had a Spanish fly, but then Mox turned it into an arm bar. Uh, there was a big moonsault that Will did to the outside to Moxley and Finley. Uh, Osprey kicking out the Death Rider. Uh, Moxley did a pile driver to Finley onto Will Osprey, which I don't think I've ever seen that before. Uh, Finley did the Irish curse to Moxley on two chairs. Um, he, um, Finley did a dominator to Osprey onto Moxley. Uh, so many coolest, crazy spots, and then you had the War Dogs coming out here. They they set their tables up, and um, Osprey is a huge uh, swanton bomb to those guys on the table. Gabe can go through clean, but then uh, there's the the funny picture that's going around the internet now of Coglin, you know, kind of his ash just went through the middle of the table. He, uh, just hilarious kind of positioning there you know strong style table and then yeah just of course like i mentioned last week you know mox was gonna blade he's gonna bleed you know he got busted open pretty early in the match and so yeah for me there was cool moves uh blood i thought it was a good story also towards the end uh dave finley does uh get the win here but yeah i thought this was a really great matchup yeah um you know, I think that this is something where we're going to disagree a little bit. But, you know, one thing I will say, and this is in my defense, I had a little bit of wrestling fatigue by the time we got to this point in the show. It was a long show. And um, it wasn't a bad show by any means. But, you know, when you're watching a Tokyo Dome show and it's long and you got the energy of like a blowaway show and, you know, as we like to say on the show, we're on pace, you know, <laughs> and it's just like, banger after banger after banger after banger and you're like you know it doesn't feel like four hours or three hours have passed or whatever and you're like damn let's get some more but after you know watching all the road to tokyo dome shows and then you know the AEW pay-per-view and then uh i think i watched raw the other night which was kind of crazy that i even did that because i haven't watched that in years and then you know all the content that i was trying to consume to prepare for the tokyo dome show by the time i was watching the show i was like kind of getting tired at this point um i probably do because i i trust your opinion i trust the opinions of several other people that also happen to love this match and i'm not going to sit here and say it was a bad match by any means but i just didn't love it it wasn't connecting for me for whatever reason maybe i do need to re-watch it but um I did think it was funny that they kind of gave David Finley the Brock Lesnar treatment, like you mentioned, and they, they framed it as we want to have our dream match. You don't belong here. I don't know if that's good or bad for them to have been burying his character that way, <laughs> basically admitting that he had no business being in the ring with them, but that's what hmm. they did. And then they get him out of there. And then the stuff, admittedly, the stuff between those two were fantastic, but then, 
honestly, man, for me, and I, I've tried to be optimistic about David Finley all year. Um, and there was even a few matches where I was like, okay, this guy's got something, but it just doesn't seem to be, there's not a consistency there um, when it comes to him and his work and even his physique and stuff like that. And in this match, he was just kind of the guy there. And I felt like he was detracting from what to me still should have been a dream match. And I know that there are some people listening um, that are very, you know, obviously like anti-AEW. They don't want to see the belt go on ice and, you know, that's fair. And they were kind of rooting for David Finley. But like the whole time I'm watching it, I kind of was getting the sinking feeling like this guy's probably going to win. And it was like dragging the match down. And then even though they were doing the cool stuff, like you mentioned, the war dogs came in and this just to me didn't feel like a match where we should have needed to have more bullet club bullshit run-ins. We already had that on the show to begin with. Um, and to me, I was like, that's not really doing a lot of favors for Finley or his character either. Um, admittedly though, the table spot was cool. We did get the, the awesome, <laughs> the, 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 the gif with uh, Alex Coughlin stuck in, in the table. But the one thing that really more so hurt it than anything else. All right. So going down the very, very stretch, you've got David Finley and John Moxley in the ring together. And John Moxley hits him with the death rider. And then he rolls through and he hits him with the high angle death rider. The one, two, boom, boom. That's like his, you're fucking dead. I've killed you now. You're out of the match. And when he hit him with that, I'm like, oh, he's not going to win. And you see him kind of roll off to the side and then Mox and Osprey go into a crazy fast paced finishing sequence. But I timed this out, Jeremy, it's 12, maybe 11, like 12 would be generous. It was like 11 to 12 seconds. And in that time, Osprey gets the advantage. He's a, he's going for the pinfall and somehow Finley has fully recovered his faculties after getting dropped on his head twice by John Moxley getting hit with his super finisher and comes back to win the match completely unscathed, no sell whatsoever. That hurt the match immensely for me. Like I was like, what, how did you get dropped twice by this guy's super finisher and then pop up like 11 seconds later and win the match with no after effect from what happened to you like that to me, that sucked. And it was deflating because looking at how, and this is not a new Japan or an AW thing to me. It's just a talent thing. And when I look at John Moxley and I look at Will Ospreay and granted, I know they're not part of this company anymore and they're leaving, but like David Finley shouldn't be the guy. Like he didn't belong in this match and it left a sour taste in my mouth watching him be the guy that won the title. And I know you're not supposed to like the heels, but like, I think there's other people in this company that could have been put in that spot and been better, honestly, at this point. And I feel like we've reached the point where the Finley experiment is a bust and <laughs> I know they're doubling down, but it sucks. Yeah. Um, it should have been, it should have been, it should have been ELP. Yeah. That, that would have been a great guy to get a big singles win and capture a title. Um, yeah. I think with Finley, I think that that was kind of the only option they had to go with here. Um, it's not. Well, I mean, that's uh, not true. Well, I mean, for how they booked it, I'm saying, I mean, you, you don't want the title to go to Osprey or Moxley. 
then Finley's your option. Osprey's sticking around till the till early February. True, and they could have done a quick title change, but maybe they want the first champion to have a little bit of, of a lengthy reign. Um, do, do you want your first title in the in the legacy of that belt to read David Finley? I mean, honestly, I mean, from the kayfabe, I mean, Will should have come in as champion. I mean, right. What did he? What did he do to lose the U.S. slash U.K. title? He he won. It got destroyed. Right. He he won his last defense, but because this guy got the the fiend hammer and, and broke it, he is no longer champion. Like that made no sense. So it doesn't make sense because a belt is not the actual recognition. It's just the trophy. Like when when they when they took Hulk Hogan's winged eagle belt and they smashed it with the hammer, was he no longer the WWF champion? Right. Exactly. Will Will should have. They should have just awarded Will the, the global title and it should have been his first defense defense yeah um so yeah the so will should have been the lineage but yeah i mean they could have had will one then do a quick title change um in, in february but clearly based off new year's dash or the, the different direction they have for will for his last big uh new japan match so yeah we'll have to kind of see what finley can do with this and you, you mentioned i feel like finley he's a guy that he has to be in there with a, a great guy to have a great match. Uh, you know, he has to be in there for a Mox or an Osprey, but if you put him in there with a guy that needs to be elevated, he he hasn't proved that he can fully do that yet. Um, well, another thing I noticed was during the lead-up to this match, when they were doing the interviews um, on New Japan World and on social media, and then during the um, press conference, he started kind of unveiling this new aspect to his character where he's playing into the idea that he's the son of, you know, multi-generation wrestlers and part of the Finley in their name and everything and that he's a Nepo baby and that the rules don't apply to him the same way they do to these other guys and that he has no consequences and he gets undeserved shots. And that's, that's fine. That's a great story, except we saw him unveil over this past year, the, the war dogs and the savages and the rebel and the world needs the rebel and expect me and, you know, bring bodies and bring gold. And he's supposed to be this badass and everything. And then less than a year later, we're moving him into like an undeserved sniveling Nepo baby role. That's to me just screams. We're admitting that what we were trying to do isn't working and we're going to need to go in a new direction. And you've never seen a bullet club leader shift in the middle of their run their entire persona like that or feel the need to do it. Um, which tells me that this isn't working, which is telling me this guy shouldn't have been in the spot to begin with. And I mean, um, if, if the David Finley that was, you know, having those great matches with Will Ospreay last, you know, and really showing up in not this year's G1, but the G1 prior, if that guy was still here and, you know, was making those improvements and strides, I'd be all for it. I'd be like, yeah, let's do it. Because that's why we were optimistic about him being the guy to lead the Bullet Club in the first place. But uh, it didn't work, and it's still not working at this point. And I'm like, you know, what are we doing now? <laughs> um, and that kind of, to me, that kind of hurt the match. I think I do need to rewatch it. I still went like four. I was like four on it, which is quite a bit lower than where you're at. So maybe I do need to rewatch it. But I... I thought it was a very good, very fun match, but uh, I just like the whole time I was like, man, such a convoluted booking mess. There's so many, there's so much smoke and mirrors here. And it's just, uh, 
for me, like, and here's the last thing I'll say on it. When I think of a four and a three quarter star, tri- like triple threat match, I think of triple H, HBK and, uh, you know, Benoit, that's like my level. And I would not put this anywhere near that. It, to me, this wasn't even in the same conversation. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, and maybe it's just, you know, maybe a different a kind of different taste thing. Uh, I don't know. For me, I thought there was just so many cool, innovative stuff in the match, especially a lot of stuff between Will and Moxley. There's a lot of big moves and spots. And I don't know. I thought they went, went out there and worked really hard. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of people, obviously, including us that were not very happy about the three way and how it was being booked and laid out. But I think they went out there and the fight, you know, the, the fight that's back went out there and had a great matchup and killed it. Yeah. I, I think I need to rewatch this one, honestly. Um, and you know, for Finley, I'll say this, listen to your father. He, he, <laughs> he wants to work with you. He wants to bring the whole family together. Listen to your father, kid. Uh, but uh, after the match, uh, Finley, uh, he went over to the VIP section and was taunting Nick Nemeth with the title. He uh, spit in Nick's face, pushed him. Uh, Nemeth did not like that, and they started brawling, and they were fighting all throughout the side there, and then kind of fought off a screen. Then post-match comments, we saw um, Ziggler, or excuse me, Nick Nemeth uh, attacking Finley in the backstage as well. And kind of talking about having pride uh, for being a champion and wanting to be a champion. And, you know, he's like, I don't even work here. And, you know, I I have respect for this title. It was just made. These guys went here and killed it. So uh, it seems like uh, we're setting up Nick Nemeth being in New Japan, that he potentially is going to be the first challenger for the global heavyweight title. Yeah, I mean, we, we haven't heard any official confirmation on the status of Dolph Ziggler slash Nick Nemeth in the company. I don't know if this is going to be a long-term deal or sporadic, you know, you know, just several dates similar to like the Jericho or uh, Mercedes Monet um, sort of deal, but I'm not opposed to him being here. I I liked the post-match angle between him and um, Finley. I thought it was really well done. I was laughing at the idea though, of those two guys going at it because like, (laughs) In a real shoot, like Nick Nemeth would just completely murder. <laughs> and they were throwing some really, especially Nick Nemeth, he's throwing some really stiff rabbit punches. It, it kind of uh, had a great energy to the whole, you know, like we've seen some pull parts recently in different wrestling promotions. And this one was done really, really well. At the same time, though, I'm sitting there thinking like it, when, when the bell rings, how interested am I in the idea of Finley and Nick Nemeth? And I'm not really that much. Um, I would much more rather see Nick Nemeth test himself against, you know, I think of David Finley as like a WWE style wrestler at this point, honestly. And I'd much rather see him test himself against some of the Japanese talent. Like, you know, I'm not advocating that he should fight for the title, but like, you know, why not have him wrestle Shingo or Naito or Okada or Tanahashi or something like that? You know, like Mm -hmm. those, those are first time matches that are a lot more interesting to me. But right. um, we'll see what happens. Uh, I did think it was, I thought his promo that he cut was very good. But then at the end, he was like, I don't even know why I'm saying this. I don't even work here. Sorry. <laughs> and I was like, bro, you made it awkward when you said that. Like you were, everything you were saying was cool. And then you're like, this is so awkward. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Promo was good. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of optimistic about uh, a Nick Nemeth run in New Japan, you know, 
there's a lot of guys when they leave WWE, they kind of rest on their laurels, they kind of rest on their names, and uh, they really don't try hard on a lot of these uh, dates they take, or they're, they're kind of doing some lower profile things, or you know, they're, they're holding up promotional money to, to kind of get these, these big spots, not really delivering. Uh, but unlike some of his other, you know, WWE guys that released, you know, he's making some big plays, big moves. I believe he did something in, in Mexico recently, and now he's here uh, in New Japan. So he's kind of going out there and going to these spots where, you know, top wrestlers want to go. And, you know, he's been in the WWE system since way back in the day, you know, OVW. You know, he was uh and White's golf caddy on, on Sunday Night Heat. Like, this guy goes back to, like, 02 or something like that, being in that WWE system. And so I think for a guy like him who has always kind of had a glimpse of greatness, and you can tell he's a guy that watched pro wrestling around the world and kind of tried to involve some of that in his style... I think that he's somebody that loves wrestling and is motivated, and I think a run in New Japan could be cool to him. I think it's very similar to almost like John Moxley, where you know Moxley really loved professional wrestling and wanted to test himself outside that WWE system. And I think that Nick Nemeth could turn some heads here um, with a New Japan run. Yeah, I- I'm optimistic about him being in the company as well, and I, I think he, uh, yeah, I think it'll be good. Hopefully. Um, two things real quick. I know it's a little off subject, but uh, they just announced Saturday, March 9th, heavyweight fight Joshua versus Nganu in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Wow. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty crazy. Uh, Anthony Joshua and Francis Nganu. Uh, another quick thing, um, the NJPW Tokon shop uh, did a collaboration with uh, Nerds Clothing. I don't really know them. But they've got these 90s style t-shirts and they've got one of Tetsuya Naito and at the bottom it says keeping it tranquilo. It looks like like our like the what the fuck? <laughs> we, are we gonna make some money off this or no? Like do, well, do we need to shoot them the cease and desist? Well, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of stuff they can shoot us <laughs> a, a C and D on. So I'll I'll, I'll let it slide. <laughs> Oh, man. What, do you, what do you mean we can't use strong style? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Welcome to uh, keeping it a Noki style. <laughs> uh. Keeping it Perezu style. <laughs> At Parker, our purpose is simple: we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Um, so let's move on here. Semi-main event, we had the Rainmaker Kazuchika Okada defeating the American Dragon, Brian Danielson, 23 minutes and 24 seconds. Yeah, so um, this match was really, really awesome. Um, First off, the entrances for both Okada and Brian Danielson, uh, great receptions for both guys. Um, I loved Okada coming out with the -the glow-in-the-dark whatever you want to call it. I don't know. Like his, his get up changed colors when they shined the black light on it. Like that was sick. 
but I think even more than that, I really liked uh, Brian Danielson's um, entrance gear, like probably the best entrance gear I've ever seen him have in wrestling. And I didn't know this, but they pointed out that this match was the first time ever that he's gotten pyro for a match, which I thought was like kind of astounding. I didn't realize that he'd never gotten pyro before. Um, but yeah, th- this match was way better than the match that, that they had at uh, New Year's or at uh, Forbidden Door. Uh, granted, obviously, that match, there was the unfortunate um, injury to Brian Danielson where he broke his arm. So they kind of incorporated that and the broken orbital bone into the story here. So, um, you know, in the lead up to the match, uh, Danielson was basically saying he wanted revenge. He was going to break Okada's arm and make it impossible for him to use uh, that arm for a rainmaker. And he wanted to obstruct his view and, and break his orbital bone and, you know, eye for an eye, arm for an arm. And at the same time, Okada was looking to make a statement and, you know, he'd been tacked out and lost the prior match and was looking to, um, you know, make a definitive stamp on his legacy by beating one of the best wrestlers of a generation in the Tokyo dome on his home turf and kind of reverse the, the taste of that loss, because we kind of noticed that the booking of Okada was a lot less prominent throughout the rest of the year, following that loss to Brian Danielson. Um, and he kind of had to like take a bit of a step back and like let Sonata be the man in the company following that. So this win, you know, kind of erases some of that, that stink off of him. And they went out there and the match that they had, I, I will say this, um, the first time I watched it, uh, I, I thought it was really good, but I wasn't quite, I was seeing the scores. I'm like, man, these are off the charts. Like people are loving this match. And again, this goes back to what I said earlier, a little bit of the exhaustion and wrestling fatigue. Um, and I was talking to you and Rich and you guys were like, dude, this match is phenomenal. You need it. And then I was like, I should probably just rewatch it. And I was like, I'm, I took the day off. I might as well just rewatch it. So I did rewatch it. And the second time I enjoyed it even more. And it, it rose in terms of my personal ranking uh, a bit more. Um, when it comes to the actual match, uh, they, like Brian Danielson was just super vicious here mm-hmm. and um, really focused his uh, attack on the arm of Okada and did a lot of super. And this is where I think it's great where it's like, you know, there's working a body part and then there's working a body part. And this guy, it, it wasn't just the same old tire trope of one person working the body and it's, you know, slow and it's, you know, passe like this. He was doing violent inventive things to really inflict pain on Okada and Okada's selling and, um, kind of like having to utilize his other tools around the, the damage that was being inflicted on him was really fantastic. And then at the same time, Danielson's coming into this match with his broken orbital bone and still doesn't have full strength in his arm and coming off of the, the C2, all those matches that he just recently had, like he definitely has like some, uh, some, you know, tread taken off the tires leading into this match. And, um, felt like Okada was able to kind of, you know, expose some of that. They fought all over the building. They went into the stage. They did some really crazy stuff. And there's a lot of times where you expected 
these guys to hit some of their big spots. And instead of hitting the big spot, they would have scouted one another. A lot of great counter maneuvers all throughout the match. Um, Danielson at one point was able to get a very similar submission um, predicament on Okada, the same move that he was able to utilize back at the halfway point of the year to tap this guy out. And Okada was able to weather that storm and persevere and not get his arm broken and not um, tap out. And eventually down the stretch was able to even inflict a lot of his own pain, started firing up, showing a lot of fighting spirit, powering out of things, attacking the eye of, of Danielson. And then, um, you know, at, at the very tail end, they went into one of the patented awesome closing stretches that Okada is known for where, you know, it's boom, boom, boom. They're going back and forth, back and forth. You don't know what's going to happen. And then out of nowhere, Okada hits, you know, hits him with the fucking rainmaker and then just pins him one, two, three, and it's over a a classic match. Yeah. I thought the match uh, was great. Um, I wasn't as high as a lot of people though. Um, You know, I think uncle Dave went five and a quarter on it. And a lot of people throwing five stars on it. Um, I was four and a half, but definitely enjoyed this uh, way more than the Forbidden Door match and agree with a lot of the points you made there. Um, Okada was very vicious, you know, with the kicks to uh, Brian's eye and removing the eye patch to get the uh, the big DT on the floor. And then there was a great spot there where, you know, Okada, he does that running crossbody a lot of times on the outside. He was getting ready to do that, but Brian caught him with a Busaiko. Um, in midair, that was pretty cool. And then, yeah, like you mentioned, Brian was very vicious on the attack on the arms. He took a, a wrist clutch, Northern Lights, which was pretty cool, landing on the Rainmaker arm. And he did a big uh, super butterfly suplex uh, into the yes lock. So a lot of really cool stuff like that to attack the arm. Okada, his kind of big comeback was hitting the, the tombstone on the apron on Brian. And then, yeah, from there, you just had a lot of great... Uh, back and forth reversals, both guys kind of working over the, the injured body parts. And like you mentioned, you know, Okada finally uh, being able to hit that one last uh, Raymaker there to get the win. Um, so, yeah, really great uh, matchup, but it wasn't quite that five-star level for me. And I think that Okada and Brian, I just think that there might be like a chemistry thing or maybe just like, I don't know, like a size thing. Like, Okada's not really used to wrestling guys that small as Brian, and then also having to, like, sell as much damage. I feel like guys are more, maybe not as tall as him, but kind of more in, like, heavyweight-sized wrestlers, and maybe that has something to do with it. Um, or maybe as a guy that kind of pushes him a little bit more like Kenny does. But overall, still a uh, really great match. Okada gets his win back, The you know, the... AW haters uh, rejoice, uh, you know, <laughs> seeing uh, Osprey and Brian take a take losses here tonight, and yeah, the Rainmaker is uh, back on pace here. Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, you know, um, there have been a lot of complaints about the AEW New Japan partnership, and with good reason. And it was uh, it was a bit refreshing to kind of see some of the bigger stars being able to take pinfall losses clean to New Japan stars. Granted, it was at the Tokyo Dome, at Wrestle Kingdom, you know, so it, it makes sense. But yeah, that's a good thing. Um, one thing I did want to point out, though, and this is, well, okay, two things. I, I'm i like you. I, I was a little lower on this match than other people, even though I thought the match was great. I'm even, I'm at four and a quarter, you know, so I thought this match was a really good, proficient, professional wrestling match with great story beats. But 
you know, one of the things with me when it comes to rating, it's like, you kind of got to get my blood pumping. You kind of got to get me invested to where I'm like popping out of my seat and like loving what's going on. And I enjoyed the match. It, 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 in a certain sense, it's wrestled perfectly, but it never got me there. And I think it might have a little bit to do with what you're saying. Like, I think there might be some chemistry, you know, snafus when it comes to these two guys. Maybe they, they just don't have that next gear when it comes to one another. I don't know. Um, but like, you know, for me, I, I felt like with them working the arm as great as everything like that was, I would have wanted them to kind of almost quasi sell the idea that Okada did break his arm. Right. That never really kind of happened. So there wasn't that added element of fear and dread for Okada's safety. It just didn't get to that next violent level that I would have wanted. And with the, the danger of the eye of danielson i would have thought maybe there'd be a blade job and he'd be selling that eye and like maybe like it didn't feel like a desperate fight and this match wasn't the dream match that the first one was the first one was supposed to be like that classic professional wrestling beautiful storytelling this one should have gone into i'm gonna fucking kill you sort of territory because that's the story they laid out for themselves and told and it it never got there and so, yeah, I, I liked the match a lot. That was really great. You can't complain. I mean, four and a quarter is not bad. Like, you're not going to complain about it. But I I didn't think this was a five-star classic, one of the greatest matches I ever saw in my life. No, not at all. Um, one other thing, and I mean, I hate to be this guy, and I hate to criticize the commentary team, but it is the thing I noticed when I, I told you I rewatched this. And when I was rewatching it, I noticed that there was a lot of things happening on screen that I was like, Oh yeah, like rewatching it I was like, yeah, I did like this. I liked it a lot. And then I was listening to the commentary and I realized that I personally feel like they were detracting from what was happening in the ring. And this might and you know, for me it's not something I would notice right away because I'm not the biggest commentary guy in the world. I've said that on this show many times and for the most part as long as you sound proficient I'm probably going to like what you're doing. Like, you know, I kind of like Matt Stryker. So that tells you everything you need to know (laughs) about my days. But, you know, when Kevin Kelly was here, and I hate to compare what the guys are doing today to Kevin, but Kevin is kind of the gold standard. Kevin had this perfect balance between telling the story of what these guys, what their motivations were and the backstory and everything, but then still calling the action, calling what was going on in the ring and accentuating and drawing attention to the actual action in the ring and what was happening in this match. And it probably was happening all night, but I only noticed it in this match because I was, I rewatched it and I was like, Oh my God, there's cool shit happening that needs to be emphasized. But instead all three guys are adding color the entire time and they're all talking over the match and every once in a while a big thing might happen and they would go oh or they might say the name of the particular move that happened but they're not actually talking about the action in the ring at all and granted i think it's great that they're adding all this color but like they're literally doing their own talking and talking about the guys and their backstory while the action is happening and paying no attention. I'm talking like literally zero attention to the ongoings in the ring so much so that it detracted the call detracted from what was happening in the ring. 
And I started to consider like, well, you know, granted it is a new desk and it's new guys on the call and, you know, they don't have Kevin Kelly there to produce them like they used to. And so it's probably going to take some time, but for a match of this magnitude, it actually detracted from me. And I don't feel like we have the luxury to be able to just tune that out and go listen to the Japanese. I'm sure we could, but a lot of the people that listen to this show listen to the English and actually want our opinions and takes on what, what they're listening to. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's just one thing I noticed. I thought it was um, bad, honestly. And I, I, what the, How they were doing it, the delivery was great. What they were saying wasn't bad. It's just when you're not paying attention to what is actually happening and you're not telling, your job is to get over the story of what the guys are doing and you're not emphasizing that at all you're missing the point of what your job is you're just taught you're just filling air while the guys are in there doing their thing yeah i i think the issue was that you almost had three color guys and Mm -hmm. and nobody doing play by play um and so i I think it's just kind of clearly defining all right who's doing what um because i feel like sometimes Chris Charlton will do some play-by-play. He he knows the moves and he'll call stuff, and then he'll switch back to doing color. And then Walker's kind of doing both sometimes too. And then you have Rocky on there who's kind of giving like the, the wrestler perspective. But yeah, at, at points throughout the show, it does seem like all right, you kind of have three guys doing color. Nobody's kind of giving you the whole by whole play-by-play. But um, it didn't really detract too much for me. But I I do see where that could be. An issue and, and could be an issue going forward, but also like we said, it, it's you know Walker's still new to the New Japan style. Uh, yeah, Chris is great, and you know it's been a while since Rocky's been on commentary, and you know he's kind of doing his thing. Um, so yeah, I just think that you, you need time to kind of gel and create the chemistry and create this team. And I mean, I'm confident over time it'll, it'll get better. I mean, Walker has a great voice; he's done ton of commentary before. Um, so, well, well, you know, that desk, I mean, it's you, each one has a defined role. You've got, you know, the play by play guy, you got the color guy. And then with Rocky there, you got like the expert analysis, like the workers perspective. And I just feel like a little bit, they lost their, their way, you know, cause they were all just kind of doing color the whole time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so big match there. Kata gets the win, and then I, I loved loved the post match with them bowing and paying respect. And it seems like this is a you know I beat you, you beat me, we move on. Yeah, it's funny. Brian did try to shake hands with Okada's uh, injured arm, and Okada's like, <laughs> "You idiot!" Essentially, like you worked my arm the whole match. What are you? What are you doing? Uh, so yeah, that that was pretty funny. So yeah, good post match there. Um, that that brought us to. The main event for the IWGP World Heavyweight title, Tetsuya Naito, the G1 Climax winner, defeats Sonata 25 minutes, 42 seconds to become the new IWGP World Heavyweight Champion. Yeah, um, quite a stark um, difference in reaction to these two guys when they came out because you have Okada or <laughs> Okada. I'm so used to being in the main event. You have Naito just getting a monstrous ovation, literally the biggest of the entire night. And I think that there's definitely smoke to the fire that he was the catalyst for the number that they did draw 
on this evening. And then Sonata came out in amazing gear, by the way, just like literally looked like a million bucks, clearly an ode to uh, Kiji Muto, who even though he's retired, we can't seem to get <clears throat> get away from this guy. But um, <laughs> almost no reaction. And I think that that is also a very damning thing in and of itself. You know, longtime champion walks out and it's almost crickets in the dome. And when it's quiet in the dome, it's real quiet. Yeah, uh, but but the match itself, they worked, in my opinion, for the most part, what I thought was a pretty fantastic match. And I'm kind of in the minority here. I thought that this was basically, I, I will admit, I thought Danielson and Okada, or I liked Danielson and Okada more, but I thought these were about the same level. I, I didn't think they were that far off from one another at all. Um I gave it the same rating, four and a quarter. I thought it was a really strong main event. And um, I do know down the tail stretch that there started to be some sloppiness and um, there started to be some botches, right? Mm -hmm. But for me, wrestling doesn't always have to be perfectly manicured and 100% pretty. I think sometimes when you have some of that stuff, it can accentuate the match, especially like you look at uh, the Osprey Naito G1 match this past year that like elevated the match and i wouldn't say that these necessarily elevated but they did play into the story where sonata's shoulder was being worked over and then he started to be being not able to elevate and carry and lift uh naito so to me it still played into the story of the struggle that they had going on there was only one time down the tail stretch where like they got stalled and they were both just like kind of standing there. For yeah. They're like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. They, they clearly like lost their communication. And it, it, that was the one point where I was like, but overall, I mean, they had, they, I still think that they recovered from that. They had great closing stretches. They went into the big match sequence and I'm a little bit more partial to this style of wrestling where you hit your big move. I kick out. I hit my big move. I kick out. And the crowd the crowd just started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And like, they were going wild for the reactions of this match. And I'm one of those people where like crowd reactions really does influence my perception of a match quite a bit. And they were living and dying with Naito. And I started to feel like Sonata was doing a good job winning them over at the, at the end as well. Like it wasn't like they all turned on him and they were just all like the, the crowd definitely started to get behind them. And then, the story between these two guys and the history that they have with one, one another, it was all there and it was being um, played out and say what you will about the build. I didn't think the build to this match was great, but I thought the match itself was pretty excellent. And then for Naito to get the big win at the end there with the, um, the Destino uh, I did, I couldn't figure out how it happened, but he got his head busted open off that Destino. I'm, I'm assuming like Sonata's head must've came up and clunked him. Because I, I watched a few times and I couldn't see what connected, but he was bleeding bad. But picked up the clean win, one, two, three. Sonata, you know, goes off crying. <laughs> tai, Chi's, tai Chi's out there to console him. And, you know, um, just uh, I thought it was great. And then, you know, the only, the only bad thing about the post-match was evil and House of Torture coming in to try and ruin the post-match golden roll call. But even then we got, they kind of salvaged uh, Sonata's character a little bit and that he played defense and they paid respect to one another. Naito got to do the golden roll call, even though 
it, it was less effective to me to do it without all of LIJ there. But either way, um, the crowd was sent home happy. And I thought it was a really great finish to the show. Yeah, I really enjoyed the match. I also went four and a quarter on it. I know for a lot of people, it was their match of the night. I know a lot of the Naito fans were super happy, and that was a great moment. And yeah, it ended up being a great matchup. I think for me, and it's probably unfair to them, is you know I I compare this to other Tokyo Dome main events, and you know was it oh for sure was it on the level of you know. Uh, Omega Okada, Okada Tanahashi, Okada Naito, you know, Abushi J. White. Was it was it on the level of all those? Like I want my Tokyo Dome main event to be what we've been seeing the last, you know, five, six years, this kind of blowout big match. You know, even, you know, Okada Shingo. Like there's been a lot of great, you know, big matches on these double dome shows and the dome shows over the last, you know, you know, the, the keeping strong style era <laughs> of, of, of <laughs> Wrestle Kingdom, and that's what I wanted to see. And uh, a lot of those main events had a lot of great heat, great stories, great matches, and like you mentioned, the, the bill was kind of lacking here. Uh, and then the match, while it still it it made the notebook, it, it was a notebook match four and a quarter. Uh, to me, I I did feel a little deflated, a little disappointed that we kind of ended on that note and not on something that was like, oh my gosh, like this was a match <laughs> of the year contender. Uh, well, you know, in all fairness, though, um, this is the same. I know that there's going to be people listening thinking that I've sounded pretty negative on quite a few portions of the show, but it's I'm coming from the same place you are. With the logic you're applying to the main event is the same logic I apply across the board. When you look, when you compare what this show was, it was a good show, but when you compare it to Wrestle Kingdoms of years past. And you kind of, that's where I'm kind of coming from. I'm like, I know how good this company can be when it's running at its best. And for the most part, 90% of the show wasn't that, you know what I mean? And that's kind of the standard I hold this company to. Yeah. So I mean, overall, you know, great matchup. It told um, a good story. Um, there's a lot of cool, you know, Naito hitting that big uh, Frankensteiner off the top. Uh, we had a near fall with Sonata with the moonsault. Um, they had a near fall with a Destino. There was a uh, Naito hitting a deadfall on Sonata. So that they was did, cool. Yeah, they did a lot of really cool. Uh, Sonata did the, the O'Connor roll for a very close near fall. So they, they, did a, they did do a great job with the near falls. And, you know, nobody really kicked out the deadfall before. And so when um, Sonata hit that, I was like, oh, crap. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was like, what are they doing here? Oh yeah, and the crowd was too. Yeah, uh, so that was a great near fall there. But yeah, eventually uh, Naito was able to hit that um, Northern Lights bomb. Hits the Destino, gets he the win. Build him on that Northern Lights bomb. I mean, that might be the best one he's ever done. Yeah. Um. Then, like you mentioned, the post match. You know, Naito's getting ready to do his post match thing. Evil and Togo come out. It's not a fight. Some off, and yeah, then we finally get the big roll call, which I know a lot of people were like, "Yeah, what." Why wasn't the rest of LIJ out there? I thought that was the whole point of this thing. But there has been several times where Naito just does the roll call without those guys coming out. And so I think the whole point was just for him to be able to do the call, the closing roll call, do his kind of post-match thing without getting jumped. And Mission succeeded. They did that. They sold shirts off of it. Big moment. You know, Naito fans rejoice. They finally get their moment. Naito is, is a man. He's a world champion closing out the Dome. Yeah. 
So we move on to the next day earlier today, New Year's Dash 2024, New Year Dash 2024, <laughs> January 5th, uh, from the uh, the arena at Sumacita City Gymnasium in Tokyo, Japan. There was an attendance of 2,910 in attendance. And Jeremy, I don't know about you, it's been a, a long show, so I'm guessing we just kind of go over the uh, results couple quick thoughts but we'll kind of talk more about the story beats what kind of was developed and came out of this show and uh if you're listening and you're not familiar uh new year dash is you know always the the show post wrestle kingdom where we don't know what the card is ahead of time it's like a mystery vortex style where everything occurs live and then you kind of get surprised about the matches and most of the major storylines that are going to be established uh during the months of like january february march start here so um first match of the night uh we started off with a surprise where we got special singles match between hiroshi tanahashi and he defeated ryazuki taguchi in five minutes and 40 seconds prior to the match though uh they got on the mic and uh taguchi basically said since we're taking this uh company in a new direction and you're the new champion I'd like to challenge for the NJPW World TV title, and Tanahashi obliged. Right, yeah, I made a call. The president, you're the president, you, you can do this. And so, yeah, it had a quick little uh, five-minute and a 40-second matchup there. Kind of some ha-ha at the end where Taguchi exposed the president, um, but Tanahashi used it to his advantage, put, put his uh, butt in Taguchi's face on the roll-up, and I got the win. My girlfriend was walking by, she's like, that's the president. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then uh, post match, uh, we got a little mini uh, vignette VTR video, and it was none none other than Matt Riddle, the King of Bros, doing a little video and challenging Tanahashi. So you know, five years later, we're finally uh, getting uh, Matt Riddle in New Japan. Yeah, talk. You know, when people talk about restoring the feeling, I told Rich today, I was like, they restored the feeling today because. When this company was in its top heyday, they didn't care about women. And today we learned they still don't care about women because they hired Matt Riddle to come work for this company. <laughs> yeah, uh, obviously you can look it up if you don't know what you know all the allegations and uh, sexual misconducts that's uh, been thrown uh, Matt Riddle's way and just kind of the, the behavior he's had. I mean, he even got to the point where you know WWE had to release him and he was heavily featured. On their show, big uh, part of the you know the rated RK bro, and they were doing a lot of stuff with him. And you know Matt Riddle, he is a great professional wrestler when he has his head on straight. And I think from an in ring standpoint, he will be a great addition to the roster. This is something we wanted back in the day before we even knew about the allegations. And um, you know there was a New Japan offer made to him before he went to NXT. Um, but now, but separating the wrestling part of it, clearly there's a, there's a lot of allegations. There is uh, him just not being safe to be in a locker room. I guess you know, there's no women in New Japan, so maybe, I don't know. But we've seen that New Japan, they don't really take a lot of seriousness behind the the Americans when they have allegations and misconduct because the Japanese audience is probably unaware and don't know exactly what's going on with him, and they can kind of hide that in Japan. Yeah, and this is you know par for the course when it comes to new japan we've seen that they've been willing at different times they try to bring marty Skrull back even after everything that happened with him and speaking out um they completely ignored 
every single allegation that's ever been made when it comes to Chase Owens. And, you know, there's some pretty serious. They try to keep up. They try to keep uh, Chris Dickinson around. They kept Chris Dickinson around in the middle of his ongoing investigation for domestic assault and everything else like that. Um, You know, even if some of the allegations against uh, Will Ospreay and B Priestley were lesser than some of these other wrestlers, there was never any sort of conduct or uh, investigation in terms of allegations against them. It was just kind of like, you know, move on, moving on. And, um, you know, and now they're bringing in Matt Riddle and I'm sure I've probably forgotten somebody else, but they, and the funny thing about it is when a new Japan wrestler, when, when they're domestic and they have, you know, extramarital affairs or something that would be seen as not that big a deal in Western culture, they will, you know, they've, they've derailed people's careers over stuff like that. But when it happens in the West to Western wrestlers, they don't seem to mind whatsoever, as long as the, the domestic audience is unaware or, you know, I, I, I will say this. I think if you personally have a problem with Matt Riddle coming to this company, I'll tell you the truth. I'm not like, uh, I'm not the most politically correct person in the world. I don't generally care. And I believe in people being, you know, innocent until proven guilty. But I think he did that shit. I'll just tell you the truth. I, I really do. I think he's a bad guy. And I, I don't personally have any interest in seeing Matt Riddle wrestle, even though prior to all that stuff, I, I did consider him one of my favorite wrestlers. So um, I, I don't need to see Matt Riddle on my screen in 2024, you know, and I'm not like a, I'm pretty middle of the road when it comes to my political stuff, but like, I just don't like the guy. And uh, I, I think it is uh tone deaf that new Japan has brought him in. And I think that, they're probably going to be in for a shock when it comes to the Western audience's response to this. Oh, Enzo. They they also yeah. didn't care about bringing Enzo in recently too. Yeah. I mean, if I were them, I, I only book riddle in Japan because they, they book riddle on these U S strong shows. Yeah. They're going to be surprised. They're going to give it to them. They're either people are not going to show up because they're going to be so mad or you're going to have people with very bad signs or crowd reaction chance to him. So if if I'm them and I'm gonna go do this, I'm a riddle. You're only showing up in Japan. You're, you're not coming. You're not being on the U.S. shows. I don't think they should have hired him personally, but whatever. Yeah. Um, but we move on. So uh, Bishamon wrestled Kaito Kiyomiya and Ryohei Oiwa seven minutes and forty seconds, and uh, they picked up the win here. Yeah, it's just a little uh, kind of a tune-up match for Bishamon to kind of rebound um, as they try to get back into the title contention, and then. Uh, it's a, a nice little uh, match for Oyo while he's still kind of on excursion. Yeah, Kiyomiya loses again, LOL. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> third match of the night, uh, the new reigning uh, unified tag team champions, G.O.D., they defeated uh, the young blood team of Oscar Luebe and Yuto Nakashima, eight minutes and six seconds. And prior to the match, they made a special announcement that this would be the send-off match for Oscar Luebe and Yuto Nakashima as they go off to their respective excursions. Yeah, so... Really good, solid match here. A uh, good send off for uh, Oscar and Yuto Nakashima. Curious to see where they go on excursion. Uh, Post match, we did have the Crown Jewel Chase Owens come out, jump in the ring. He hit the package power driver on ELP, got the mic, and said that him and Kenta will want to challenge for the tag team title. Hikaleo got the mat, the mic, and accepted the challenge. Yeah, a lot of alleged sex pests on this show <laughs> getting uh surprise entrances but um you know the thing is with uh again with that 
I, I'm all for them setting up a big title defense for the new GOD, but I don't know that I'm gung-ho about Kenta and Chase Owens, who are both good wrestlers, respectively, but I, I don't know. There's not a lot of juice there for me, personally. Hey, better than Chase and Foley. <laughs> um, it, it, I'm also interested to see where these young lions uh, wind up on their excursion. And we, you know, last year they did say that they were going to move these guys through the system a little bit quicker, and they definitely did that here. So, you know, good on them. Uh, fourth match of the night, Great Bash Heel, the team of Togi Makabe and Hanma, along with Desperado, Master Wato, and Shota Umino, as well as Tamatanga. They defeated the House of Torture team of Dick Togo, Evil, Narita, Sho, Kanemaru, and Yujiro Takahashi, nine minutes and two seconds. Yeah, that kind of played up. Uh, evening the odds here, you know, essentially it was two on six at Wrestle Kingdom, and now we had six versus six here, and so there was no true numbers advantage. So, uh, the faces were able to win here. Umino hit the Death Rider on Dick Togo to get the win, but after the bell rang, Narita uh, hit the push up bar uh, onto Umino. How the torture they beat up the baby faces, evil. Hit a low blow and the everything is evil on Tama. So clearly we're setting up a never title match there. He cuts um, a big chunk of Tama's hair. We had uh, Kanamaru um, attacking Despi to set up a junior heavyweight title challenge there as well. And then uh, Tama kind of came through, realized his hair got cut and was pissed and uh, went running backstage. And uh, again, just got to point it out, not loving the idea of House of Torture in a prominent position, much less it's pretty clear Tamatonga's dropping that never title. So we can look forward to Evil as the next never away champion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fifth match of the night, the Bullet Club War Dogs, Alex Coglin, Clark Connors, David Finley, and Drilla Maloney, along with Gabe Kidd. Uh, they faced off against the United Empire team of Francesco Akira, Hanare, Jeff Cobb, TJP, and Will Ospreay. This match went five minutes and 10 seconds. It ended in a no contest and was... For me, the highlight of the evening and really just fucking wild and crazy. Yeah, this was a wild and crazy brawl. The ref totally lost control. Um, and five minutes, Connors had a big uh, spare on the referee. And then from there, they're just they're brawling. They're hitting each other with chairs and stuff like that. Uh, Gabe Kidd got split. He's crimson mask, bleeding like crazy. They're like jabbing something into Akira's eye to uh, make him bleed and so they're just all kind of going brawling. You know, Osprey kind of comes back in, makes a save. It's a big Oz cutter on Finley. Um, Gato hit a low blow on Osprey. TJ Priest sprays the mist on Finley. And then Osprey uh, tosses the Booker into a table. <laughs> Throw that man through a table. That was great. Um, then uh, Osprey got on the mic, said his last match for New Japan will be February 11th in Osaka. He wants to stand side by side with his brothers and challenge the War Dogs to a five on five match. And he's going to let Finley pick the stipulations. Uh, then Finley got on the mic and said he's stupid for letting Osprey, for letting him pick the stipulations. And so they pick a no disqualification steel cage match. And uh, we did, uh, you put out a thread earlier today on our Twitter account at KI Strong Style giving the the brief history of steel cage matches in New Japan. Yeah, we don't have to go into all that, but if you want to check it out, it's there. Um, every, every eight months or so, I'll put out one tweet that just gains a lot of traction. Instead of doing damage to the brand, it actually helps us, um, which is rare. But yeah, it's got a lot of engagement, which I was surprised on. Like As of right now, it's like 700, 800 likes or something. It was kind of crazy. <laughs> I guess people really like 
cage matches in New Japan or whatever. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I was surprised to hear this. I'll I'll be interested to see what the rules are if they try to work this similar to like a war game style match. At the same time, and this was an awesome segment. Uh, I do think I will say this. I think Gabe Kid. I don't think that was a hard way. I think that was a blade job. But uh, kudos to the camera people because they obscured it in such a way to where you wouldn't know one way or the other, and that's key. But um, this was really like wild. I mean, there was a point where I was like, holy shit. Like I was kind of freaking out. My girlfriend came in. She's like, what, what? And I was like, oh, they're tearing the, the fucking arena up. Like there's people that might get, like it almost looked like they could hurt the the people in the crowd. So I think the, the cage match stipulation definitely works because it, they need to be contained and kept away from the people. So that, that works perfectly. And there've been very, very few steel cage matches in New Japan history. So we're finally getting one, the first one in like, you know, modern times um, in the Bushi Road era. And uh, the only thing about it, and this is my one misgiving. Well, there's two. I'm not a big fan of Will Ospreay basically on his way out being embroiled in a feud with David Finley. Because once again, I wanted to see him kind of mix it up with some of the young guys and put one of them over on the way out. And that's not going to happen. You know, um, so there's that aspect of it. And then the other thing is, even though all all the guys involved are really great talents, I just kind of feel like with a New Japan style cage match, I smell the bullshit coming. And <laughs> I don't know what it's going to be, but like, I feel like either somebody from United Empire is going to turn on um, Will and take over and oust him or and join Bullet Club. Or someone from Bullet Club is going to turn on Bullet Club and, and join United Empire, and then they're going to oust Osprey. Like, there's going to be some sort of shift here, and people like that stuff, and that's great. But, um, and I, that's probably the way you do need to send Will out of the company. I, I also don't, I also don't believe that he's going to be working normal dates between here and AEW. I, I have never thought that that was going to happen, and this feels like a definitive send off, and it will be a while before he comes back. But, um, you know, maybe the match will be great. I don't know. Yeah, I think it has the potential to be great. But, yeah, I would have preferred Will to have, like, a big... Also, I know he's facing Okada, uh, Battle in the Valley. But I think he should have had, like, one big last match in Japan where a young guy beats him and sends him on the way out. Uh, but I do think this match will be great. I mean, this this whole segment here, this little mini angle, essentially was really great and I know we have questions about Finley but I think the rest of the war dogs are are great are vicious and I think it's gonna it could it has the potential to be a very bloody violent hard-hitting match yeah it also has the potential to be you know like polarity shifting in the company as well as in terms of like alignment stories and stuff yeah um, sixth match of the night, just five guys, Doki, Sonata, Taichi, Taka, and Yuya UMR. They defeated the LIJ team of Bushi, Hiromu, Shingo, Naito, and Yotsuji, eight minutes and 47 seconds. I was kind of surprised to see more LIJ, just five guys interactions here. Yeah, so uh, post-match, Sonata got on the mic and um, challenged Naito for the World Heavyweight title, which we would later learn that uh, Naito accepted due to Sonata saving the, the roll call the previous night. They also um, seemed to tease another um, 
Yuyamura and Suji match seemed like Shingo and Taichi were facing off. Um, I think that's yeah. And then Taka, of course, got the the pin over Bushi. Was pretty big. It's a Michinoku driver on Bushi, making Bushi the ultimate geek. Yeah, he uh, never wins. So that was pretty. They like literally like Tai Chi laid on him like he just won like the Super Bowl or something like. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, the last time I can't recall in a long time that they've done an immediate rematch coming out of Wrestle Kingdom. The first one that comes to my mind was like when uh, Tanahashi and Nakamura fought for the IC title in the main event, that was like a decade ago. And then they turned around and feuded for that belt some more at the new beginning. So it's been a while since they've done this. Um, I did like though, I liked, you know, the buildup to the prior match, Sonata would not answer or do any promotional material to build the match. He wouldn't talk and he wanted all of his actions to speak for themselves in the ring. And so Naito was very frustrated trying to do a one-sided deal. And then here, Sonata actually showed fire and called him out. And now Naito is giving him a taste of his medicine and won't answer him. And I don't know if that story is great, but I did like the idea of seeing Sonata show character, be fired up, and maybe progress in the wake of his loss. But um, I'm also not sure why we're doing this match again. I also was just kind of surprised to see Naito, who is the top star in the company and the new world champion, not in the main event and not mixing it up with the other big stars that would be in the tag match to follow. And I kind of feel like he should have been. Yeah. I mean, six match a night, not even in the semi-main event spot. Pretty interesting to where they slotted that. Yeah. Um, Seventh match, the semi-main event, we had the NJPW King of Pro Wrestling title four-way match. Uh, as Taiji Shimori, Great Okan, and Toriyano and Yo wrestled. And this was a final, I don't know if the official title, but basically it was a scramble match and it was pinfalls only. And whoever secured the final pinfall at the end of the 10 minute period would be declared the provisional KOPW champion. And at the end of the match, the last guy who had picked up a pinfall was Ishimori and he is now the new provisional champion. Yeah, this is exactly what we kind of mentioned earlier when talking about the Rambo. Like, you, you got this match that kind of did this goofy scramble situation. There was a lot of kind of comedy, comedy haha, especially at the end where Great O'Connor's, you know, chasing around Ishimori. He's trying to get a pinfall before the time runs out. Ishimori uh, ends up, you know, hitting the low blow, pinning him and wins, um, you know, runs away with the belt. Time runs out. So, yeah, Ishimori is the first provisional. 2024 KOPW champion. Great. And then the main event, uh, the team of TMDK, Kosei Fujita, Mikey Nichols, Shane Hayes, and Zack Sabre Jr., they defeated uh, the Blackpool Combat Club, Brian Danielson and John Moxley, along with Chaos members Okada and Tomohiro Ishii, 13 minutes and 50 seconds. Really great, strong tag team main event. You know, I, I said that the, uh, the thrown out... Um, tag match was my highlight of the evening but i could see a lot of people feeling like this was match of the night yeah definitely a cool moment we kind of got this kind of last year when kenny came out and teamed with okada at the end of last year's dash and so kind of another moment here where you have like the the aw stars teaming up with okada so kind of a, a dream team all-star team but yeah they ended up taking the loss here with uh team dk they the tank buster on ishii so post-match, Sabre got on the mic to see once another match with uh, Brian Danielson in Japan. And then 
uh, Fujita, who's made it a, a goal to wanted to beat Okada, he challenged uh, for the Never Six Man title. So Fujita, Nichols, and Hayes are going to challenge Team Hall of Fame. And Okada was yelling and screaming, saying, "You are in no position to challenge me, kid." Um, he left, so uh, setting up that big uh, Never Six Man match there. Great, and that is going to do it for uh, New Year's Dash. So uh, jumping into the news, a couple items here quickly. Battle in the Valley, which is next Saturday. Um, we don't have a full preview coming because we don't have a full card yet, but there were three matches announced and solidified. So Will Ospreay and Kazushika Okada will be facing off for the final time in New Japan as of now and for the first time on U.S. soil. Um, in addition, at the end of the evening, Shingo Takagi was um, John Moxley was cutting a promo backstage and Shingo Takagi uh, came up and basically challenged him and said he wanted to face him at Battle in the Valley in a no rules, no disqualification match. So that has been uh, solidified. So we're getting Shingo and John Moxley. And then um, post-match, Gabe Kidd challenged Eddie Kingston for just the NJPW Strong title. So not for the Triple C, not the Triple Crown, just the Strong title. And that will be taking place this coming Saturday. And Jeremy, I think it is fantastic that you and I living in the States only knew that these three major matches <laughs> were going to happen a week out because we can definitely jump on a plane now, take time off from work and go see these incredible matches. All right. Yeah. Plane tickets won't be expensive now. Hotels won't be expensive. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I, I get it. I understand why they do this from a kayfabe standpoint, but they got to find a workaround. If you're going to have a, a big show like this with big matches like this, like at least plant the idea, tell us who's going to be on the card, do something because right. Promote, 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 promote the, this show, yeah. promote because now we can't go. And that bro, if I had known I had one chance to see Osprey and Okada in the States, I would have probably tried to be there. Yeah. Uh, other news, they made the announcement um, today, NJPW is making a comeback to Chicago in April, marking its first return since 2022 with the second edition of Windy City Riot. The company revealed on Friday that they'll be hosting um, at the Wintrust Arena Friday, April 12th, starting at 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time. Uh, general public tickets are going to go on sale Friday, January the 2nd with a venue 12th. exclusive presale. Oh, I'm sorry, January the 12th. <laughs> With the uh, venue exclusive presale scheduled for Thursday, January the 11th. Ticket prices are going to range from 29 to 39 for stand A and stand B, and 199 to 299 for ringside seats. So uh, that's like a 10,000 plus seat building. So uh, pretty lofty goals for them. The biggest show ever for NJPW Strong's brand. Yeah. Um, other news: Stardom is set to make its comeback to the United States in just three months during its January 4th event in Tokyo. Stardom revealed plans for a show in Philadelphia on Thursday, April 4th. Uh, this event will be part of WrestleCon and will be hosted at the 2300 Arena, a.k.a. the ECW Arena, and it is titled Stardom American Dream 2024 in the Keystone State. Uh, the show is scheduled to kick off at 3 p.m. Eastern on April 4th. So big news for, you know, Joshi and Perezu fans that are going to be in Philadelphia at that time. Yeah. Um, Stardom. Itenion Stardom Gate 2024, there was uh, two big developments. So in the main event, Mayu Iwatani, she was successful in defeating Shuri to defend the IWGP women's title uh, at 19 minutes and six seconds. Great match. We'll probably review it here on the show at some point. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. 
And then earlier in the evening, uh, the Divine Kingdom, Micah and Megan Bain wrestled Julia and Suzu Suzuki uh, to a time limit 20-minute draw. And post-match, Julia disbanded Donna Del Mondo. And the rumors are that she's heading to WWE slash NXT. She is currently the NJPW Strong Women's Champion. Yeah, so expecting that they'll probably get the belt off of her pretty quickly. I believe she is going to be at Battle in the Valley. But yeah, uh, very interesting developments here with uh, Julia. Um, On January the 2nd, NOAA, the new year, 2024, there was a lot of uh, cross-promotion between New Japan and NOAA. Uh, On this event, um, Tomohiro Ishii, he defeated Masa Kitamiya, 15 minutes and 4 seconds. Again, an incredible match. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. We'll probably review it on the show. We're already just starting off the year, and there's a lot of great excursion matches that have taken place. Um, later in the evening, Go Shiozaki defeated Satoshi Kojima, 13 minutes and 56 seconds. Um, as well, the team of Yoshinori, Ogawa, and Zack Sabre Jr. defeated Hayata and Hiroshi Tanahashi, 17 minutes and 36 seconds. That was a preview for the uh, TV title match that would take place two days prior or after. Um, as well, there was a 12-man tag team elimination uh, tag team match as Daiki Inaba, Junta Miyawaki, Keito Kiyomiya, Ryohei Oiwa, Shota Umino, and Shuji Kondo. They defeated the House of Torture, all six members, 26 minutes and 14 seconds. And then finally, the last bit of news from coming out of that's just kind of adjacent, but uh, Kota Ibushi defeated Naomichi Marafuji in a 33-minute, 26-second main event that is being labeled as one of the absolute worst Main events in the history of Perezu. Uh, r- reportedly, Kotobushi had a, a laundry list of ailments and injuries going into this match and further injured himself even further in the match, um, which is very you know, unfortunate and sad to hear, uh, especially since we're such big fans of him on the show. Yeah, apparently broke both of his ankles in that match, and he's tweeting now saying that he got scammed by some clinic uh, prior to the matchup, so yeah, there's a lot of uh, injuries and ailments. So hopefully Abushi uh, gets better, but yeah, definitely uh, rough stuff here for the Golden Star. In 2023, the collaboration between the New uh, New Zealand Dojo and NJPW Tamashi brought forth a new project known as Lions Den. Um, they're going to be having another uh, New Zealand New Zealand Dojo exclusive showcase events uh, taking place throughout January. Lions, uh, Lions Den is set to make a weekly comeback featuring events every Saturday with a $10 entry fee for adults. So that will also be uh, taking place in conjunction with two-day seminars and tryouts that will take place at the New Zealand Dojo February 2nd and February 3rd. So kind of surprised that New Japan is still <laughs> associating with the New Zealand Dojo after the reports of, you know, um, you know, all the controversy that was going on with that. And uh, we'll see how that shakes out, but I'm a little surprised. Yeah. In the latest release of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, Dave Meltzer shared insights into WWE's interest in forging partnerships with uh, Japanese promotions. Meltzer mentioned that uh, Triple H uh, is exploring potential alliances in Japan for the future. Uh, The initial phase involved NXT collaborating with All Japan, highlighted by Charlie Dempsey's recent Triple Crown Championship Challenge. Additionally, WWE is actively seeking a women's promotion to align with and the internal discussion revolving around uh, them even possibly trying to reach out and work with New Japan for wrestling. Yeah, so uh, once here we are once again, uh, WWE trying to get their claws into Japan. Um, and also we saw the whole thing, uh, 
Regal's son, Charlie Dempsey, challenging for the Triple Crown Championship at All Japan's uh, New Year's show. And, yeah, there's rumors of them trying to get a Joshi promotion and even trying to work with New Japan again. And um, also with the whole kind of united front that New Japan has with the other promotions and the AEW partnership, I doubt that's going to happen. Uh, I made a joke in the thread today. I said uh, one thing that um, that fans uh, that the WWE has that they could work with New Japan is be like uh, Tanahashi. I know you love Shawn Michaels. <laughs> do, do you want to work with Shawn Michaels? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think you might that, say yes to that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I think we should be safe as far as WWE working with New Japan. Uh, but yeah, they're definitely they're they're making efforts here to get their get into Japan and find people to work with. Yeah, and you know, at the same time, all Japan Pro Wrestling, uh, and we don't cover them, but reportedly they've had a banner year, and you know, right now they're in the middle of a really hot storyline and angle, uh, you know, surrounding Katsuhiko Nakajima, as he's kind of become like an Enochiist. He's adopted a lot of the. Uh, strong style iconography and uh kind of dedicated himself to being like an Anoki uh apologist and took on kento miyahara in a really fantastic main event recently and kind of just getting heel heat playing off of the age-old rivalry between king's road and strong style all at the same time there's a huge exodus of um leadership and wrestlers from all japan and I don't know if it's in conjunction with what's going on with WWE or if it's just unrelated, but you know, there's a lot of people worried that there is this collaboration taking place with WWE and all Japan and that they've kind of, they're, they're essentially picking the, picking their spot at a vulnerable company, legacy company um, to kind of make inroads into the Japanese market. So we'll, we'll keep a, um, an eye on that, but you kind of combine this with what's gone on with, um, their you know recent deal with the bema sports and everything like that and uh you know you have to be very wary anytime wwe potentially moves into you know a foreign market um as well today there was a an announcement representatives from six different wrestling promotions in asia they've officially formed what is known as the asia pacific federation of wrestling um members from japan include uh njpw and stardom uh, DFW from China, Puzzle from Taiwan, Setup from Thailand, and Grapple Max from Singapore. And this new group known as the APFW is aimed to kind of expand wrestling across Asia with like cross promotion and talent sharing. Um, kind of interesting that this is happening right at the same time that New Japan supposedly is doing the same thing in, you know, locally within Japan with all the other domestic companies. I don't know what to think of this, but uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, it almost kind of seems as defense as them trying to build themselves up as the market leader in Japan and in all the the Asia region to kind yeah. of to stop you know WWE or other companies from trying to take over. I think it's a response to that, yeah. And then uh, the last bit of news here: former wrestler Masashi Ozawa, better known to wrestling fans as Killer Khan, passed away on December 29th after collapsing this bar in Tokyo. He was 76 years old, and uh, we don't have the the time or capacity here to do a full obituary write-up and, and retrospective. But I did listen to uh, our friends over at Voices of Wrestling, and they spent a good portion of their last episode detailing the long-storied history of uh, Killer Khan as he was a major um, 
you know, wrestling star across the territories as well as here in new Japan for wrestling. And, um, definitely saddened to hear about his passing. Um, I, if anything, I would say one big recommendation, if you've never seen it, go out of your way to look for the 1981, no 1982 singles match between himself and Andre, the giant, the famous, it's not a choke match. It's not a joke. Uh, it's one of Andre's <laughs> best matches on tape and, uh, kind of gives you a, a good glimpse into, uh, the talent that was, uh, Killer Khan and our our thoughts and wishes go out to his friends and family. Well, that's going to wrap it up for the news. Last thing here before we get out of here, recommended match of the week. So last week you did recommend for us to watch the World Historic Welterweight title match between Mascara Dorada 2.0 and our good friend Rocky Romero from uh, CMLL's uh, Super Vernis from uh, December 15th. Yeah, so I mean, I, I just watched this today. Um, and I know that you did too, Jeremy, and this was awesome. Like really, really, really just awesome. Uh, you know, this is the third match between them. They had a a match earlier, uh, the week prior at MLW went like 10 minutes. I don't think it was on the same level as their two big arena Mexico matches, but, um, I, I saw the match. They, the first match they had and that, that one had a different kind of element to it than this one, but this match was definitely the cleaner more well-worked match i've i'm seeing major strives and improvements when it comes to the work of mascara dorada 2.0 or whatever you want to call him now um rocky definitely had less uh he was still a heel here but this was kind of more your classic uh it was worked like a a a major title match in mexico but instead of it being two out of three falls they just worked it like the final fall all across the board and um, very emblematic of what you normally see with guys hitting their big moves and kicking out a lot less viciousness and, you know, healed them from Rocky. And this was kind of just more like a struggle between two guys going out there and kind of laying it all on the line. Some really wild stuff. If you're a big fan of Lucha Libre or dives, this one was chock full of that silky smooth sequences between these guys. I mean, they've worked out all the kinks the crowd was super into this, and um, there were some great near falls. My what my favorite near fall was uh, at one point, Mascara Dorada goes for a shooting star press. Rocky gets the knees up, and then he cradles the guy, and I thought he beat him. I literally did, and then uh, Mascara Dorada kicks out, and Dorada uh, gives everything to Rocky, including the kitchen sink. This one goes just shy of 20 minutes, and I'm at four and a half. I, I liked this as much or maybe better than almost everything on Wrestle Kingdom, and that tells you a lot. So, um I was blown away here. I don't know what you thought, Jeremy. Yeah, this was a great main event. And like I, I think we talked about Masked Rada when he was on New Japan Strong Show. But yeah, this guy, he is raw, uh, such a great young talent. And he does a lot of really cool stuff in the ring. Just the way he was moving around. He did a lot of cool stuff with the ramp as well, where he kind of like bounced out of the ring into the ramp. And I thought Rocky was a uh, pretty vicious um, uh, ripping at the mask of uh, Masked Rada. Uh, so that was a pretty cool spot there, and yeah, they had a, this was a lot, a lot of really cool moves, and like you mentioned, kind of the one, one upsman shit of trying to uh, be the better man. And uh, towards the end, uh, Masquerade was able to hit that big uh, shooting star press and get the win on Rocky to become the new CMLL welterweight, world historic welterweight champion. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I love this. What did you go rating wise on this? Yeah, I'm like four and a half on it as well. 
Oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, you can definitely watch this on the subscription service that uh, CMLO offers. Also, if you know how to get there, there's the Lucha blog and, uh, you know, the drive that he has, which is always available to, you know, those that know. But uh, go out of your way. Find this one. It's from the December 15th Friday Night Arena Mexico show. And it was this match was awesome. Like this might actually be my favorite Rocky Romero match from CMLL over the past year. And that he's had a myriad of classic matches. So that's really saying something. Yeah. He's been on an incredible run there. Um, this week I am recommending, uh, Zach Sabre jr. Versus Jordan breaks from premier promotions from December 29th, 2023. This was a British rounds rules match. And this shit fucking rules. If you haven't seen it, you can find it. It was the the link. It is a private link on YouTube, so you can't find it just by searching it. But if you go to um, friends over at Wrestle and Kieran, if you go to his uh, Twitter, we shared the link to that um, a couple days ago. You can find the link to watch this match, and too few people have seen it. It's really, really something. So yeah, go out of your way and watch this, Jeremy. I know, you, I know you're not as uh, big on the British rules, but I think that you'll like this one for sure. Cool. Do you have anything for me this week? Or you are no? I thought we were doing, only doing one match. Nah, bro. We, I said we can do whatever the fuck we want. It's our show. All right. Well, let's just do this one. <laughs> we'll do this one. <laughs> oh man. Well, thank you everybody for uh, tuning in to our Wrestle Kingdom 18 review. Next week we'll be back to announce the winners of our 2023 year-end award started doing the the tabulations the calculations for that today i think you guys will be very happy with uh the winners in the categories uh so if you enjoyed today's show please consider making a donation visit socialsuplex.com slash donate click on the donate button under the keeping it strong style logo make sure to connect with us on social media on x the show is at ki strong style follow the network at social suplex you can follow me at Jeremy L. Donovan on Facebook. Follow us at facebook.com slash social suplex and the Wrestling Squared Circle Facebook group on Reddit. I am the pro black guy. Y'all just keeping a strong style. Join our social suplex Discord server to interact with us and other wrestling fans. And you can email me, Jeremy, at social suplex.com. Check out all the other shows that we have here on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. One Nation Radio, hosted by Rich Latta and James Boyd. All Things Elite, hosted by Floyd Johnson Jr. and Austin Sumowitz. Imps WWE Adventure with the Implications of Matthew Mayer. Wrestling Art with Chris Things. Tunnel Talk with Allie, Ann, and Leah. And the Trish and Sarah Wrestling Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review. And we will and catch... Before we go, one quick thing. I just want to let you guys know. If you listen to the show and it's your first time and you thought it was a little bit pessimistic, we are still optimistic about the year that New Japan's going to have. We've got big things in store for this show, big developments that are coming down the pipeline. You're going to want to rock with your boys. Trust me on this. Stick around because there are huge developments coming. 2024 is going to be the biggest year in the history of this show, guaranteed. And I really think that next week's, uh, you know, um, awards episode thank you everybody that voted in that because you're really gonna um that's always one of the best episodes that we do and i think we're gonna really enjoy to see the results of those votes and what 2024 looks like yeah 
So we will catch you next week on Keeping a Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. It's your boss. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time.